am wearing jeans right now, so I know you guys can only see me from the torso up. So at some point, I might <laughs> take off these jeans without you guys knowing. <laughs> By I the promise... way, we secret <laughs> we secretly prom... start every episode with a lot of jeans talk. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Ah, I didn't even make that connection. Why? Why do I just want to talk denim every time you and I get together, Josh? <laughs> I can talk some denim. Levi's 511. That's my that's my jam. Wait, I just bought Levi's. Now I can tell you what style I am. Yeah. I'm a I'm a 501. Oh, classic. Whoa. Classic. Holy shit, perk. Yeah, I have a giant ass and thighs, and so I think I had to get like <laughs> a special number. These are 514s. 514s? I don't even know Did what that means. they make those in America? What is that? <laughs> I went to Madagascar think... to get these. <laughs> That's like when you go to the uh, like the department store and you see, you just see a bunch of Levi's that you've never heard of before. It's like, I think they're just filling in numbers now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th these are from the Levi's store officially. And uh, yeah, that's exactly, I walked in and the saleswoman was like, uh, can I help you find something? And that's exactly what I was like, listen, I have a big ass and thighs, and so I need something that's going to fit. <laughs> uh, whatever, salespeople, I just figure I might as well just get to the point with them. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of getting to the point, how about we get to the point blank and start this episode? Yay! That's pretty damn good. That was Thank good. You. Thank you. Solid. <laughs> so let's start we got austin here our first guest ever um so austin you want to introduce yourself we're friends with you from the discord with gorley and russ well first off thank you for having me um it's probably an unwise decision having a guest of my caliber this early but it was <laughs> your wish so here we are what you think you're too big of a deal <laughs> you're too high yeah, caliber that... and we just can't contain you that's exactly what I meant. Um, Only downhill from here. <laughs> you're a shooting star, and we will anchor you. <laughs> so yeah, I met y'all uh, probably around the time we recorded the episode of Best Little Horror House in Philly was when like things were really taken off in that Discord. So uh, I've talked pretty frequently since then and been listening since y'all started and it's a good show and just had to had to stick my head in and uh talk movies with y'all love this it. is exciting because you're from you might need are you from nashville proper or just around there so i'm close enough to where i just tell people nashville yeah but it, so like now we have 20 minutes now we have two Nashvilles into California, and the title still works. <laughs> That's actually why we had you on as a guest, not because we like you. It just worked thematically <laughs> with the title of the show. And, uh, but I'm no, no you... longer in Nashville, but okay. not too far away. And Austin, we gave you a choice of movies. Um, you want to just say what you picked and kind of well, why you chose it? I think it was more like I forced you to pick this movie, so <laughs> I uh, I chose Point Blank. Um, it's a movie I saw a few years ago, um, probably two or three at this point, 
Uh, what year did it come out? Is it 67? 67, yeah. And I I wasn't really too big into crime movies at that point, but I saw it and it was just awesome. I don't know. I hadn't really seen anything like it and just kind of stuck around in my head. Um, there's a lot of a lot of visual stuff going on that doesn't always happen in crime movies. It was a great choice. I had never seen this movie. I had never seen a Lee Marvin movie that I knew of. Um, and I thoroughly enjoyed this one. I thought it was really cool. Late 60s, early 70s, that kind of vibe where it's just, it's got a little bit of grit and you know, Lee Marvin's playing it real tight to the vest, so you just kind of get this man with no name, almost Clint Eastwood-esque western character, but it's Lee Marvin in San Francisco and Los Angeles, but still going around, beating the shit out of people, generally outsmarting everyone, and um, it, it was really fun, man. I, thank you for choosing this one. Yeah, this has been one of my favorites. Um, I probably saw it about eight or ten years ago, maybe. Um, I used to have a job where I worked third shift in an office and I was literally, I was like the weekend third shift guy. So I was just there to, uh, track, uh, trucks as they were traveling across the America and sign for packages. And so I would just sit there with my laptop uh, for 12 <laughs> hours at a stretch and watch movies. It was the best job ever. It was fantastic. And I watched it one of those nights and I remember because, um, the DVD version of this not only has the movie, but it's got a great uh, commentary track with uh, uh, Steven Soderbergh as the uh, facilitator for it, which I learned a lot from that as well. And there's some really good articles that you can look up um, on American Cinematographer is one of them uh, that kind of detail a lot of the a lot of the more experimental stuff that they did in this movie as well. Yeah, I listened to that uh, over a couple sittings this week, and that was a really good listen. Yeah, it is um, it is Soderbergh like, interviewing John Borman, the director, right? Not the cinematographer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So uh, John Borman went on to do stuff like Exorcist II, uh, Zardoz, Deliverance. He seems like a real journeyman but never quite did something that was this experimental or psychedelic in the, within the editing and uh, the mise-en-scene uh, of each individual shot, as I would say. I, I love that uh, John Borman, uh, a British director, made arguably one of the like biggest American movies of all time with Deliverance. Mm -hmm. I've only seen Deliverance, I think. Of his other movies. I mean, Zardoz is obviously Zardoz. That's its own thing. Uh, and uh, <laughs> have you seen Exorcist 2? I don't know if I've seen that. I've definitely seen Exorcist oh, yeah. 3. Because 3 has that um, monologue with Brad Dourif. Which is so yes. amazing and awesome. And George C. Scott. I, I like those later George C. Scott movies where he's just kind of a... Kind of gritty, overweight man bumbling around in the world of crime. <laughs> um, but yeah, you surprised me because I thought Borman's style would be a little bit more offbeat and interesting and avant-garde. 
following watching this movie. So I'm surprised that right. this was kind of um, a one-off thing that he did. And it was based on uh, a novel called The Hunter by Donald E. Westlake, um, which is part of the, the Parker series. I believe it's the first? It's the first. Yeah. Okay, yeah. There's There's a bunch of them. Yeah, which I just downloaded to my Kindle, um, but I have not dug into it yet because I'm still going through Last Days. Thanks, Sean. Oh, nice. That's a fun book, right? Yes, it is. It's really good so far. Yeah, it's it's not the best thing in the world, but if you just want kind of a found footage horror novel, basically about a guy making a documentary, um, check out Last Days by Neville. A pretty fast, fun read. Yeah, I've been literally... Uh, when we take the five-year-old to the pool in the evenings, I sit there by the pool and read it, and uh, it's perfect for that environment, I would say. Yeah, because each each little segment takes 10 to 15 minutes to read, and mm-hmm. then it kind of moves on to the next one. So you can read it episodically. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this by, uh, going back to uh, the Parker books, yeah, this movie, when I was watching it, I was like, this feels like something. This feels like something I know. And then especially at the end when he's like, you owe me $17,000 or whatever the number is. And they're like, what? That's all you want? 17 grand? I was like, I know I've seen this. And Josh, you were like, yeah, it's payback. I was like, yeah. oh my God, of course, it's Mel Gibson's payback. That's what this is. And I've seen payback like five times. I don't know why I've seen it that many times, but uh, <laughs> it's a good one. So putting so, this movie in that perspective really changed how I looked at it. Did you come across the anecdote of um, the original <laughs> script that they had for this movie? Yeah, <laughs> it's no, a great little. Please, please tell me. You're not gonna, you're not gonna like it, Sean. <laughs> um, I believe it was uh, Borman is talking about uh, on the on the commentary how the original script they threw it out the window. And it landed in the gutter, and Mel Gibson must have picked it up and used it to make his version of the, of the story. Because <laughs> right. it wasn't now, acceptable. I'm not going to say Payback is an excellent movie or a wonderful movie, but it is a thing of its time that left a deep impact on me. Like It's just, it's the bluest, literally blue, movie I've ever mm-hmm. seen. And then there's like that classic scene where Mel Gibson makes the guy hold up two briefcases in a T-pose. And he yes. says, do not put those down. And the guy starts shaking. So Mel Gibson puts a bullet through one of the briefcases. And just dumb shit like that, man. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a so, bad movie, but I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'd be curious to rewatch it now after this one and see how it holds up to this Lee Marvin one. Yeah. So I, I watched that uh, a few months ago for the first time. Um, and it, it is... I, I had a lot of fun with it, but it definitely is like the dumb version of this story. <laughs> just like no like subtlety, just uh the Parker character is like a total brute. Um but in some ways it's closer to the book than point blank. Um so I I'm curious what the script actually looks like for them to say they threw it out the window. <laughs> Right. So you said these are, what's the series called? Just the Parker series of books? I believe it's, I, I think that's right, yeah. Because there's, all right, so now there's two pulpy sets of stories I want to get into. This one with the Parker character, and then um, Remo Williams, which is a Fred Ward movie from the 80s 
that was based off of a bunch of pulpy novels called The Destroyer. And it's all about the same character in different crime stories. Um, they seem to be like brother and sister kind of novels. So it's um, noir is definitely a topic that I've wanted to watch more of. I've wanted to watch more movies. Um, this was really fun. It was different, especially after last week watching um, Blue Ruin and Blood Simple, or two weeks ago, excuse me, to, to watch these ones. Uh, man, I just love it. I love the subtle feel of things. I love the minimal dialogue in these movies and how much you just have to figure out as an audience through your own uh, perception and viewing of everything. Um, you know, I, I thought all noir movies were kind of like Chinatown, where you get a guy and he sits in an office and a dame walks in <laughs> and his legs are up to her shoulders and see, and like, but seeing noir in a different perspective, these are really, really fun. Yeah, it's definitely, it's one of my favorite uh, genres. And it's kind of like horror in that I f find a lot of straight dramas that take tropes from both uh, genres and kind of use them because they're so effective. And there is stuff like, there is your classic um Maltese Falcon type noir, which is great in and of itself. I mean, it's really fun. Um, but it looks like there's maybe eight or ten different movies based on these Parker novels as well. Yeah, I've uh, shoot, from what I time should have pulled up a list. Like, when uh, was they the reigned, first one? The most recent was like 2012 and star no 2013 and mm -hmm. starred Jason Statham. And it's the only one I have not finished because it was so uh, just bland. Statham, Statham in the early 2010s was putting out a lot of B-level schlock. Yes. What was, wait, um, what was that one called? Because I remember Statham, Statham was also in that remake of the Charles Bronson movie, The Machinist, I believe. Or, no, The, yeah. the Mechanic, not The Machinist. The Mechanic, yeah. and... And the sequel. <laughs> and those were movies that like so clearly missed the mark. Because then I watched the Bronson one. And I was like, oh, this is nothing at all like that Statham movie. Whereas like, the Bronson one, again, kind of similar to this Lee Marvin one, was all kind of like subtle violence and implied violence and things. And then you get the Statham one, and it's just explosions and jump kicks and backflips and all the crazy shit he does. Yeah, the... Uh... Statham Parker, which is just called Parker. I think it's the only one where the where the character is actually named Parker. <laughs> which yeah, I was I was gonna bring that up. I was really hoping they'd talk about that in the commentary because that's something that's bothered me since finding out this was a series. It's like why why can't you just use the name? Right. <laughs> it's a perfectly good name. Was and every right, especially like Walker, it it's I mean it's like a. You could mishear that and think they're saying the name. It's so close. Just use the name. Yeah. I don't get it. <laughs> what What's his name in Payback? I swear it's Parker. Porter. I think that's it's Porter. Porter and Payback. Porter. Why do they do Which that? Which is that's so, so hard weird. to say. Because, again, it's so close <laughs> to Parker. They want to call him Parker. Just do it. I, I, I have to wonder if there's, like, a rights. Like, they say... $20,000 because they didn't use his name or something right. stupid. So I am not sure 
how to recap this movie, either one of these movies today, because they both play with time and form so much. So we're going to kind of play fast and loose a little bit with going through these. Uh, also, the plots are very twisty uh, and a lot of fun to follow, but they're definitely not ones that I sussed out all the way through the first time. Actually, also last night, I just watched the new Soderbergh movie, No Sudden Move. Have you, either of you guys seen that one? I have not yet. I would like to, though. Uh, you cut out for me for a second there. All I heard was Sudden Move. What was it? The the new Soderbergh movie on HBO Max, No Sudden Move. No, I, I, I haven't heard of it. It's, uh, it also is a neo-noir. Um, Soderbergh is in his experimental phase still, so instead of form, it's definitely the camera. And, and I've heard him on interviews, and I'm pretty sure he says, yeah, the director of photography found this great lens for me to use, this great fisheye lens. Uh, he's his own director of photography. <laughs> does he that's, use an alias that's yeah uh, peter andrews i think that is a genius way to give yourself a compliment yes <laughs> um well I mean, we could start uh, it sounds like we're starting with point blank so we could try to get into the plot a little bit and i'm sure we'll ping pong around in the timeline um yeah but this movie uh, it starts so fast. Like the opening shot basically is Lee Marvin getting shot twice on Alcatraz mm -hmm. <laughs> and basically left for dead. And that's a hell of a way to start a movie. And it jumps between uh, at least three, maybe four different uh, times within the story within those first few minutes. Right after he gets shot, it jumps back and forth between... Uh, Walker and his wife, Walker with uh, Mal Reese, who's uh, kind of the guy who gets him involved with the heist. Um, when they're planning to jump some criminals, they're on Alcatraz, they're at a party. I mean, it's crazy. And to explain it, it doesn't make any fucking sense. But when you watch it, it all just kind of coalesces together so nicely and the editing and the overlapping dialogue from scene to scene just makes it really flow uh, in a way that I wish more movies were this experimental. Five minutes into this movie, Walker's wife says to him, how did we get into this mess or something? And me as the mm -hmm. audience, I was like, here, here, how the hell did we get into this mess? Because we've seen an hour worth of story already in five minutes, and I don't know how that's right. happened. Uh, yeah, we see Walker and Mel meet at the party. It's a crowded-ass, like, New Year's Eve party. Mel punches him in the face, lies on top of him on the ground, and then is like, I need your help. Listen, right. guys, I love both of you. If you need my help, you don't need to punch me in the face. You can just <laughs> walk up to me and ask. Like, that, that scene right there was just like, oh, that must be what it's like to party with Lee Marvin. Like, guys just right. hit each other in the face and then laugh about it. <laughs> and Walker somehow manages to swim from Alcatraz to San Francisco proper with two bullet holes in him. Like, he managed not only to get out of the maze that is the Alcatraz, which I was just there and on that tour and walked up all those hills to get up into the, the main uh, part of the prison there. Uh, 
Like, I gotta give him credit. He's a powerful man to get through all of that and still make that swim, which I believe no one has done. So that's pretty impressive. The transition of him um, kind of wading into the, the water and then the voiceover of the tour guide narration mm-hmm. and then him on the boat. I, I'd forgotten that part and it was it was awesome. Yeah. Just how well it transitions. And that's... Um... I think it's Soderbergh points out in the commentary that it makes him into a mythic figure automatically. Oh yeah, that it definitely does. Just with that cut, like you fill in all of this story that he, which we don't know how much time has passed um, until later in the story, but I think it's over a year. Is it not? That uh, goes ah, between the shooting and him kind of starting up his uh, mission of revenge. I wasn't clear on that. Um, exactly. Yeah. One thing this movie did that was really bizarre um these freeze frames around the title cards and then even then there's a there's a title card for the co-stars which i thought was really interesting but also these freeze frames there's one where lee marvin is jumping over a fence he's climbed a chain link fence Mm -hmm. and it freezes the left three quarters of the frame and then you see a seagull flying in motion on the right one quarter of the frame this movie's doing a lot of trippy weird editing which, Josh, you being a Soderbergh guy, he did um, the Limey, correct? Yes. I see so much of the editing in this movie in the Limey. Uh, it's not even exactly. funny, you know? Yeah, on that commentary, he talks about the fact that he has stole multiple scenes uh, from this movie and lifted them directly into his. Uh, and it's one of those things that if you go through... Um, the list of stuff that Soderbergh watches while he's making things, you can see these direct one-to-one influences, um, but not in a Tarantino kind of way, but you see them lifted into his stuff uh, and kind of mashed up. And they're, I think it's fascinating, like just to try to understand the way that his brain processes taking in this stuff and turning it into his own version. I love it. I'm going to have to give the limey another chance because I wasn't really sure. I think I was expecting point blank too. And mm-hmm. it, it's kind of, I don't know. There, it's got more of a comic tone to it. If I remember right. And it, or a little more odd. Yeah. Not, uh, it, it, it's not exactly what you think it's going to be. The limey didn't, it, it underwhelmed me a bit. However, the editing blew my mind in that movie yes i'd never i had never seen editing how that movie does editing where there's certain sequences almost like what you see guy Ritchie do later in snatch where he has these little hip-hop montages that he repeats when the guy's on the airplane and takes a shot and gets his passport stamped or whatever but the limey there's circular editing where they keep flashing back and forward to the same moments again and again and fascinating really really uh, off-putting too to to be an audience member and watch something new and then immediately have your brain in three different locations like almost constantly thinking about how did we get here what led to this point but also I know what happens in the future so how do we go from this point now to the future that I know really interesting right when Walker's on the ferry this is one of the main characters is this Yost who at first I thought was an FBI guy Like, he doesn't ever say that he is, but he totally seems like he's uh, an FBI or CIA agent or something who's working on the outside of his purview 
and giving Walker information um, so that he can hunt down the other bad guys for him. Um, which I guess, he ne- yeah. He, he never says one way or the other in the commentary, but especially on a rewatch, I, I got like major uh, ghost vibes or something like, like he, uh, I don't know. The scenes where they're in, uh, Walker and, uh, spoiler, if you haven't seen the movie, Fairfax are talking to each other. Mm-hmm. They, uh, I don't know. It, it's like they don't fully interact. It's just Fairfax kind of talking to him. Okay. It, it's a very weird interaction. Yeah. So the basic gist of this is at the very beginning, Walker is on this heist to jump uh, these other gangsters who are making a drop with his friend Mal Reynolds and his wife is helping out as well. Um, or his girl, at least. I think they're married. Um, I think they are I married. They are, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Mal shoots Walker and leaves with his wife <laughs> within the first couple minutes of the movie. Uh, and the other thing that we're seeing is that these guys are best friends. Um, kind of countercut with uh, the betrayal, which is pretty impressive. Um, and then when he talks to the Yost slash Fairfax uh, and he gets this information, it's about how to take down the organization that uh, Mel is a part of now, um, which is just called the organization. The gang is just called the organization in this. Yeah. One thing we didn't, that we didn't talk about, sorry, was uh, Walker didn't seem to want to kill anybody on this job. And that's one yes. thing that Mel straight up shot the two gangsters and Walker seemed to be more of a pacifist of let's just knock these guys out and rob them. Uh, right. And uh, yeah, Austin, I, I really like your read of it being kind of ghostly because he does have this kind of omnipresent, omni- like this guy knows everything and he's kind of like Walker's God where he's just kind of commanding Walker to go this way, go that way. Well, and we might as well, I was going to say this to the end, but do you guys think that Walker actually died on Alcatraz and all of this that happens is his revenge fantasy playing out in his dying moments? There are moments where he seems invincible and so often things aren't explained of how he's able to do things that he does seem to be a bit of a Superman. For instance, when there's... Mm -hmm. It jump cuts after there's two guards on the roof of the building. And then the next cut, we see Walker has tied both of them up. Or later yeah. after that, there's a man in the garage shooting a pistol at him. And Walker so casually just strolls back around a pillar and waits for the cops to pick that guy up. So he he yep. does seem very <laughs> invincible in ways. So I personally didn't read that because I normally on a first watch, I don't look for theories like that. I usually just take things as they're given to me. Um, yeah, but that's an interesting one to to take a look at on a rewatch for sure. I typically read movies very literally, so I'll just stuff will go completely over my head, and I'll get to the end, and like <laughs> Blade Runner, for instance, I would not have gotten that he was a replicant right. had I not read that there was an argument whether or not he was a replicant. I just was like, oh, he's just a guy. It, he's just in the story. So I, uh, I definitely like seeing it now, like it's very unprobable that he is just like some normal guy, but 
I don't know. I, I think it's kind of boring if it's just a dream. I mean, it's yeah. cool that it, it's kind of structured that way, but it's a lot cooler to me that he's like a a John Wick type that just somehow gets around everything. Well, and I think in like a just crime story like this, you don't expect a, a possible metaphysical aspect <laughs> of it. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah, not at all. Because <laughs> what, uh, what you're describing is basically... It's the only movie I know that's been able to get away with this, basically. Uh, Jacob's Ladder. It's the only movie I can mm-hmm. think of off the top of my head that pulls that card and does not get lambasted for it. Right. So, uh, it's a tricky one, because that's usually a trope that everybody immediately makes fun of. And how many times have you seen in horror movies and stuff these days, you see a character death or, like, the lead actor dies, and then they wake up, and it's like, oh, it happened with the... Out of sight, but it was a sex dream instead of a murder dream. But yes. still, like, every time I feel like that happens as an audience member, it just deflates you a little bit. At least it does to me. Yeah. And especially it's been really popular with the, um, there's been multiple, like, indie versions of uh, the story in occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, um, which I think the first televised version, the first filmed version was uh, some of the uh, Twilight Zone. It's one of the weird Twilight Zone episodes. Um, and the, um, oh, the, like the Shirley Jackson and the Mike Flanagan stuff. Um, those stories have been done, uh, in different versions a lot of different times. And, uh, Turn of the Screw is the other one that it seems like every two years, some smaller indie studio puts out a version of that story. Um, and it's, always the same like from the trailer i'm like this is the same story and i so i already know these people are dead they're all dead it's the story that's what happens pretty amazing how many times they keep trying to pull the wool over our eyes with the same things and it it works most of the time you know yeah you're uh, you're leaving out that bon jovi's uh video clip for the song dying ain't much for, much of a living uh, the Owl Creek Bridge story is featured. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go back and watch that one. <laughs> I, I'm not familiar with this story, so I'll have to I'll have to look that up. Oh, uh, it's a classic, uh, Ambrose Pierce. And, Pierce, Pierce. I look forward to having uh, new movies ruined for me now. Yes. <laughs> it's one of those once you see the source material you start to spot the little ways it gets pulled into other stuff all the time uh, I wanted to point out the the scene of Walker walking through the airport did you guys recognize that airport I did not but that scene is incredible yeah with him and his shoes pounding on the floor so there's this famous uh, tile mosaic uh, in LAX airport it's in the graduate it's in the Mel Brooks movie High Anxiety. Uh, they show it in Airplane. Uh, Tarantino uses it as the very opening of Jackie Brown as she's like first coming in. Um, I don't think there's an actual people mover there, but it seems like there is in his movie because she just kind of floats past the wall with this multicolored tile mosaic in the background. Is, is, uh, is Jackie Brown a woman? Yes. This whole I've never seen the movie this entire time. I've thought Jackie Brown was about some dude named Jackie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, Jackie Brown ties into our second movie. Yes. Um, 
because it's an Elmer Leonard, Elmer Leonard story. Yep. And uh, you've got characters crossover and, but the only actor, Michael Keaton crosses over and right. Samuel L. Yeah. Jackson does, but he's a different character in both movies, which is kind of wild. Uh, I lo- that loud footsteps part is awesome. And I, I like just picturing the Foley guy who had those shoes on in, in that studio. I'm just like, I am going to stomp as hard as I fucking can to get the sound of these like, <laughs> click, 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 click. but it's like a metronome. And it's awesome because mm-hmm. then it's kind of edited into this montage and we see his wife doing her makeup in Los Angeles. And it's just like, everyone knows he's alive. And so everybody is haunted by these footsteps. Like everybody can hear him coming because everybody knows that Walker is a scary, scary man. And so, um, you know, later we can see that after this, she's basically been unable to live any kind of life, both from guilt and from anxiety of his uh, inevitable return. This was on the commentary, and a lot of my notes are going to be, I heard this on the commentary, but uh, John Borman, when Lee Marvin died, his widow asked if there was anything he could have of uh, Marvin's possessions, and all he asked for were the shoes he wore in that scene. And so he's, he has the shoes that Lee Marvin wore. That's cool. That's, that's awesome. That's pretty cool. It's a good tidbit. Especially within this movie, they're iconic. Um, and his suits are, I would say, iconic in this movie. The way that he dresses, it goes from like flat gray to more and more colors. And the rest of the world goes from gray and washed out to more and more vibrant colors and you see them in everybody else and in his surroundings more than you do in Walker himself. Um, but Except for his face, uh, there's a lot of color in his face, <laughs> his red, red <laughs> face. Yeah. That, this movie in general has some like beautiful colors to it. I mean, mm-hmm. even the poster is just gorgeous to look at. There's a few different really good posters of this movie. Oh yeah. So say, uh, so Walker breaks into his wife's, new house um and she tells him basically she lays out what has happened so far that she and and mal ran off together and then he left her uh about three months before but the way that it's shot like it's composed like a tableau like it's a stage and there's these giant curtains behind them and the whole room is gray and uh lee marvin is in a gray suit and he's almost blending into the background um, and it's wild because the only color you get really during this sequence, um, is later when all the bottles break in the tub. <laughs> Lee Marvin. And it, it looks like a lava lamp. Lee Marvin really <laughs> hates two things in this scene. He hates, he hates that fucking mattress because he bursts into that yes. bedroom <laughs> and shoots it five times, even though it's clear there's nobody sleeping in it, but still bang, 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 bang. And then. After that, he goes into the bathroom and just starts like a like a medic clearing off a table about to do surgery. Just like whole arm clears the shelves of all the perfume bottles. And these are not normal perfume bottles. Some of them are like neon green and dark red and mm-hmm. all these bizarre colors that later he smashes them again. And we get this shot of them all like oozing together in the bathtub. And it looks like this mixture of like perfumes with some blood mixed in and it just 
It's, it's kind of gross looking, honestly. She was definitely using the reanimator reagent <laughs> perfume. Uh, yeah, so this is when the wife is like, uh, I wonder what if it's like to be dead. It's probably a relief, right? Yeah. She takes an overdose of sleeping pills, and Walker, like, as she's dying, he's having flashbacks of when they met, and her even at that time, like drifting towards Mal, uh, kind of as the three of them hang out. Okay, at this, and she then, says, do you remember the rain? And then it cuts to them on a yeah. dock that is completely dry, not raining one bit. <laughs> and it's Walker walking around <laughs> with her and like five dudes in black pea coats and beanies that are just oogling her. Like what? How did you meet her here? What? How did you two end up here? Walker's drunk. Like, this yeah. is the man that swept you off your feet where you're in this terrifying dock position? Like, this is scary. I felt very threatened for on her behalf in that scene. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to... It's a good to, thing Lee Marvin's like the biggest guy. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but one other thing is that bedroom. Did you see the mirror in that bedroom? It has that... It's almost like a marbled mirror where it has that weird mm -hmm. veiny stuff. But it just looks, it makes everything look like a haunted house because it looks like there's like mold and uh, algae growing across this mirror. Even though back in the in the yeah. 70s, that was just fancy. You know, we have marbled mirrors, I guess. And the the door is like built into the wall. Like it, when it closes behind him, it's mirrored as well. And it like disappears into the wall, which is awesome and horrifying i can't imagine waking up in that room well yeah like... <laughs> or you take a little too many mushrooms and then you're trying to find the door handle and suddenly you're just trapped in an infinite room by yourself so he walks around her house and things like appear and disappear her furnishings disappear um and there's a board nailed over the front door which is wild like i don't know is he squatting there as time is passing and her stuff has moved out? Or is this all in his brain or what? I'm not quite sure. So the the board over the door, doesn't he... He he brings in that delivery guy and then he, like, punches it. Yes. I love that part. <laughs> he, like, punches <laughs> the nails back into the wall. He catches... I had that in my notes. He catches the guy with the, the board with a nail oh, in yeah. it. He catches him in the shoulder and then pins him against the wall pushing the nail into the guy to get information. Like, that's a pretty badass interrogation scene right there. <laughs> <laughs> There's a cool shot right around this part where it's it's like a shot, reverse shot of Lee Marvin, and he's he's watching two men in a parking lot through a screen door. And so you get this kind of cool oh, focus yeah. of him where, like, Lee Marvin's in focus, but it's kind of behind the screen. But then you get his point of view. And so now instead we're looking through the screen and it completely changes the perspective because now the camera's a lot closer. So you're getting these large square patches instead of just the screen door. Uh, I just, little stuff like that, man. There's so much finesse and little touches either in the edit or in the cinematography in this movie that are really wonderful. Yeah, that the side where it's shooting towards Lee Marvin... Like, he's in focus part of the time, and then he moves out of focus, or it racks focus, and he stands there, and it's a long shot where he is out of focus and kind of a little bleary looking through this thing, and it's just, 
I don't know, it gave me this feeling of he is kind of um, like hung over and just kind of beaten up already at this point in his journey uh, looking out. And I think it's supposed to be Yost Fairfax that he's looking at. Um, he was watching him as well, which is another of his like omnipresent, omniscient sort of things. I think it's around this point that I spent way too much effort uh, trying to see what was playing at the movie <laughs> theater. That he, that oh, you can it's, see. it's very angled, isn't and it? It's, the the marquee. Yeah, yeah, and it it was Eric Soya's Seventeen, which is like a Swedish sex comedy or something. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't as satisfying as I wanted it to be, but if somebody out there wants to complete the uh, I think that's um, I think that somebody is you <laughs> in a couple months when you come back for your second episode <laughs> and we watch Eric Soya's seventeen. <laughs> I think it had like a four on IMDB, so that's probably yeah. higher than my typical <laughs> average. <laughs> So he got information from the courier um, uh, to go talk to this guy, Big John. Big uh, John Stegman. Big John Stegman is so greasy, it's wonderful. (laughs) Okay, so he's at the car lot, and him and this other salesman are just like the wolf in the cartoon ogling this woman (laughs) who comes to buy a car. He's barely... Aware that Lee Marvin is even in his presence. They're so busy Uh just staring at the scantily dressed woman. You know, Big John Stegman gave me real, real Bill Paxton from True Lies vibes. Of just that, like, sleazy car salesman that's just in it for sex. Mm -hmm. And he's going to try to manipulate women using his car salesman job and stuff. And just... Just the like greasiest greaseball. It, it picture a used car salesman, and then picture that guy owning a used car lot, and it, you got a good idea of exactly who Big, <laughs> Big John Stegman is. He also reminded me of Dan Hedaya in Blood Simple. Oh yeah, when he sleezes up to the that woman that Maurice is talking to, and is like, "God, oh, tell him you got a headache." She's like, "I don't, I don't want to fool around with you." <laughs> He's just greasy and sweaty. <laughs> Um, so this, this part, this was one of my favorite scenes, um, because this is where Lee Marvin says, oh yeah, I'm interested in the car. Let's go for a test drive. And so you see Lee, you see Lee Marvin put his seatbelt on only the lap belt, of course, because it's 67, which still like blows my mind to just have the lap belt only. And, uh, Mm -hmm. Big John decides to not put his seatbelt on. And that is a huge mistake. (laughs) This part. When Lee Marvin, Lee Marvin starts interrogating this guy by essentially trashing his car, and then in the process, because the guy's not wearing a seatbelt, starts fucking him up because the guy's getting tossed against the windshield and stuff. So there's one point where Lee Marvin's driving like somebody who's 15 years old, where it's like gas brake, gas brake, gas brake, and the car is just lurching back and forth, jumping across the parking lot, and you see John Stegman in the passenger seat bouncing everywhere. It made me so happy, this scene. And that's the... I think it's also in uh, The Driver, if you guys have seen that one. Uh, yeah. It, doesn't he do pull a similar... That sounds familiar. I've only seen it the okay. once uh, because it's 
kind of hard to see, and I didn't see it until it, w- it wasn't that long ago. But I, I've only seen okay. it once, and it, I, what movie I really is need the driver? to rewatch. Uh, the driver is Drive in the seventies, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> With Ryan yes. O'Neill. It's it's fantastic. It's a lot of fun. Um, but I really, after I watched drive and then I went back and watched the driver, um, which there is another version with Mark Descascos, uh, from iron chef, the same story. I don't know, but it's also called the driver. Well, we got to watch that now. It goes on the list. (laughs) (laughs) So Lee Marvin, his, uh, his interrogation of Stegman is successful and Stegman essentially tells him, I believe where, where Mel's hideout is, correct? Well, he tells him to talk to someone, Chris, who was his wife's sister. Ah, that's right. Which is, yeah. But he then he winds up at a club that Chris supposedly works at, and he talks to somebody else um, looking for her. And this the club scene is fucking buck wild. Yeah. That scene is amazing. I love the oh, singer yeah. going up to people going... Hey! 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 And holding the mic up to them, and they're just... Oh, man, that's... I want to be in that club. That looks so fun. And I love when Lee Marvin goes backstage. (laughs) Two guys follow him back there to attack him, and he smashes one with a bottle across the head or the face or something. I don't... Mm -hmm. I I have a note that says that just felt very real. Like, you can like see the dude's face just like he's like realizing he's getting hit with a bottle like I'll on the forehead it. it's like that could even with like a sugar glass bottle or whatever that movies, didn't feel very good movies, sorry josh movies make hitting someone with a bottle seem like it's just like a playful thing it's mm-hmm. i've never seen it but i've <laughs> talked to bar managers and stuff who have Every time they mention it, it's like a look of horror on their face. Of like, no, it's the most fucked up thing in the world when somebody when it happens yeah. to somebody. That'll split a scalp real <laughs> yes. quick. Uh, but I love, yeah. so Lee Marvin beats the shit out of these two guys, and then the is it the waitress who comes back and just starts screaming? Yes. Let, let's not forget he punches that one guy <laughs> in the ball so hard, straight up in the dick, just punches him. <laughs> <laughs> Just spreads his legs and one shot like, <laughs> fist straight down onto the nuts. Uh. <laughs> that came up in the commentary. Uh, uh, Soderbergh asked Borman if he got any pushback on stuff like that. And uh, I don't think, I'm pretty sure he said he yeah. didn't, which is pretty cool. And that. But the whole scene is violent. The the bottle smash, throwing them through the shelves, he just like tears these guys apart. Uh, and it's a lot of fun with the um, there's projections happening behind them of like this trippy oil stuff that they see use at concerts. Uh, looks like lava lamps on the wall, and then like kind of remind me of like Andy Warhol prints or something with big faces and things. Uh, and the that soul band is like just jamming the entire time, like what a what a great scene! It's just, it's just so fun. <laughs> it's definitely one of those scenes where it's like the combination of the music and the environment just raises the violence level 
uh, something it's like the, the energy mm-hmm. of the music and all the distorted colors and everything makes the violence so much stronger and more effective than if he just beat the shit out of these two guys in a office building. I don't know if uh, the people making the John Wick movies are. I mean, surely you would you'd like to think they oh, know, yeah. but the the permutations of this to that, like there's a definite connection connection where. Uh, specifically thinking of like the second one where he's at that club concert thing oh, and there's yeah. just a gunfight going on with the dubstep yes. music going on. That's yeah. That's <clears throat> I was thinking of the the sauna scene. Or my favorite version of that. My favorite version oh, yeah, of that, that scene too. is in Collateral, when Tom Hanks goes into the nightclub and that song. Ready, steady, oh, go. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Oh no. Hey, remember when, when Sully goes into that nightclub and just starts beating the shit out of people? <laughs> Sully Sullenberg, of course, America's hero. <laughs> Tom Chris. Okay, Tom Chris. Like that this. scene is so badass when he kicks one dude in the knee and shoots people, and like the club is going nuts, and that song is blasted, and there's strobe lights, and uh, I, I want to watch Collateral again right now. Collateral might be my favorite Michael yeah. Mann movie. It's been a long time since I've seen that, but I I like it a lot, and I would like to, I would like to create the <laughs> Tom Hanks. Cut so recently, <laughs> I've been telling my friends that I'm gonna recut Heat and cut it down to be the tightest 100 minute action movie you've ever seen. Because Heat, <laughs> I love Heat, and it's wonderful to watch the first time. But when you watch Heat for like the tenth time, there's so much fat on that movie. It's like good can we please move on from this i don't need to know about natalie portman's relationship with her stepdad i don't <laughs> there's so much yeah. uh, <laughs> ashley judd's relationship with val kilmer that's almost nothing in that movie like just just so much where i just i don't need it at all have you uh seen the trailer for the val kilmer documentary by the way no but after watching the snowman recently i am fascinated yeah it i think it just dropped yesterday or the day before um and Val Kilmer apparently was one of the first guys that had like a um, VHS or uh, camcorder. Uh, and there's all this behind the scenes footage of him like shooting rehearsals and stuff. And even before that with like Super 8. Really? Um, and since he can't. Yeah, since he can't talk, I think his son does the voiceover for the documentary. Whoa. Uh, but it looked great. There was like just some really classic Hollywood kind of stuff and makes you realize how much he was in and how much he was in that world and in that scene. Uh, and it looked, it, it gave me little goosebumps watching Remember it. the saint? Oh yeah. I watched the saint so many times growing up and I have no idea why. Good movie though. Great soundtrack. I have never seen that, but I grew up, uh, I don't know how much I saw of it, but there was the saint TV show. <laughs> <laughs> Sean's pants are off. It's too hot, guys. It's too hot. Uh, there was a the Saint TV show starring Roger Moore. Oh, yeah. Um, I I don't know how long it went, or I think they were hour episodes, so it kind of felt like mm-hmm. movies. Uh, all I remember is one episode: a car careening off a cliff and exploding prematurely which instilled a young love in me for <laughs> cars exploding <laughs> in silly situations <laughs> nothing wrong with that 
So, Kilmer, that's sad. I want to watch that documentary. I like his he had throat cancer or Yes. Um Yeah, it it sucks. Like it's awesome that he was cast for The Snowman, which is the most garbage movie ever. It's great to watch with friends if you want to be rowdy and make fun of something. But mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's like they had to ADR Kilmer cuz he just <clears throat> his lines were sounding strange or whatever. And, okay, I get it. But they ADR'd him with a man who sounds like Bane. Uh, so it's Val Kilmer, but he talks like this, and he's, we have to kill the snowman before the snowman kills us. It's just like, that's not his voice. What have you guys done? I don't even think you got an American to voice that part. Like, it, it's, it's a bizarre train wreck of a movie. I highly recommend it. I have not seen it. Um, I read half of the book. And then vacation ended, and I just didn't finish the book. It was pretty good. I just didn't finish for no you reason. You didn't want to keep going down that hairy hole? Nah. <laughs> Walker uh, finds Chris. He breaks into her house, and she says she'll help him. They On the commentary, they talked about um, the penthouse compound of the bad guy. Like that, that the top of that is actually a matte painting. Uh, I missed that. I do remember that they built a a set on top. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of that yeah. wasn't there, which was pretty cool to uh, hear that. Yeah. However, it is they use this um, the skyline and the way that it transitions from day into night. Sean, it's one of those another one of those shots that they do where. It was you're in one shot and it goes from the middle of the day to like the dark of night and just all the lights pop on and it's great. It really sells that 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 whole building exists. I love matte paintings so much. And once I learned what a matte painting was and when I can spot them, mm-hmm. it, it blows my mind what those artists were able to do and how amazing it was with simple technology to be able to put set movies in completely fabricated and imaginary locations the main one i the main one when i think of a matte painting that first comes to my head is in the thing there's a scene where there's five guys standing on the edge of this gigantic crater with the ufo where it's crashed in and so it's just this amazing matte painting where you get five little black dots of guys and the bottom two-thirds of the frame is just matte painting by itself but it it it's everything it establishes so much i I really hate being the dude that harps on cgi being the worst which i mean i it generally doesn't look as good to me but i mean those matte paintings like specifically that thing shot i mean it it can convince you that it's real it just looks good and it's more a lot more tactile than i mean all you have to do is compare the thing to the 2011 version (laughs) which i don't hate as a movie if it wasn't trying to usurp the thing itself like that's a you're going after a great movie if the thing didn't exist the thing 2011 yeah. movie would be pretty good, but it, <laughs> yes. unfortunately it does exist and it's going to go up against one of the greatest horror movies of all time. I don't know if you've ever seen that footage of the prosthetics and the practical effects that that shop made and shot in their, their workshop behind the, uh, behind the scenes stuff that they filmed for the making of that movie. They had some absolutely unbelievable prosthetics. There's the one where it's like two guys melting together and they were able to make that where it's like ha- the actor has this appendage attached to him and he's crawling on the ground and stuff. And so many of these things would have looked 
beautiful when you get that nice blend of practical and CGI, where uh, such as we saw in um, Annihilation, mm -hmm. you do something practically, and so that way that'll get you like 80% of the way there, and then you can fill in the details with the CGI. I think that's the best way to do it. Sometimes, yeah, the CG goes too far, and especially when you can tell when the actors don't have something to act against versus when they do. And I think an actor will always give a better performance when there is something tactile. And that's, I think, part of those, like, CG is, has gotten so much better now because especially looking at how a show like The Mandalorian is filmed now where there's actors can at least have some experience on set of some reality versus when the prequels were made 20 years ago. And it's just Ewan McGregor running around with a tennis ball on a stick and like, no wonder this sucks because <laughs> this is not human. Right. There's, there's like no humanity in this whatsoever. So uh, Chris agrees that she's going to sleep with Mal or at least seduce him so that Walker can get into the apartment. She's going to open up a back door or something, which doesn't actually make a lot of sense because he it doesn't show him breaking in, but it does. Like you said, it cuts when he encounters the two guards on the rooftop and then they're tied up and hanging over the edge. Um, and he throws their guns in an air vent, which I think is another sign that he's not in it to kill people. He wants his ninety three thousand dollars. That's all he wants. He wants to be left alone, I liked him and he wants those his money. Guns That's it. Down that air vent. I, I don't know. I just something about that seemed really funny <laughs> to me to just think about these two guns that are sitting for decades in some heating vent. This part really made me laugh because Chris's diversion on Reese has worked. He's taking care of the guards. <clears throat> now Walker goes into the room and he grabs Chris, or he, excuse me, he grabs Mal by the ankle and drags him out of bed like you would like a, a tantruming child or something. <laughs> don't drag your children. <laughs> I, I don't have kids, so don't listen. Don't drag your children. <laughs> so he gets Mal to stand up and then Mal faints like a goat. Like Mal is so afraid of Walker that he just collapses in that like old timey movie style. It really, really cracked me up. So in the commentary here, uh, I guess they were rehearsing the scene and John Vernon wasn't acting up to Lee Marvin's standards or something. And he just punched him in the gut, like hard. <laughs> and he like, yeah. he like started crying. Yeah. And, and then like they did the scene again and it was good. <laughs> Lee Marvin could definitely make me cry. Like 100% working with Lee Marvin, I'd probably break down. Oh, yeah. So after Walker gets back up, Lee Marvin drags him out to the balcony, basically like a dog on a leash, where he's holding him by the sheets that are wrapped around his naked body and just dragging this man around with this one point of control. And it's funny because it's almost like Mal's afraid of being killed, but he's even more afraid of that sheet being ripped off of him and Walker's going to see his nude body. <laughs> yes. Which, what happens... He dies naked. <laughs> Walker backs up. Somebody turns on a light or something, and Mal falls off the building. And I couldn't... That was accidental, correct? Yeah, I think Walker did not want to do it. Just the way that it seems. Like, he doesn't emote a whole lot, uh, but it does seem like it was an accident and he didn't want it to happen. Him falling off the building is, like, the one thing that 
doesn't really work <laughs> for me in this movie. It just look it it feels so. I don't. It doesn't even feel outdated. It feels like so singularly. I've never seen a fall effect like that. It's so weird looking. The fall effect. It kind of looks like, remember in Jaws 3D when the shark breaks through the glass and you can see like the black outline of the shark that's drawn into the frame? <laughs> Mal's body as it spins yes. in the air kind of looks like that. There's like a black outline to his body or something. Josh, it made me think of the fact that you and I watched Eight and a Half and that movie did the falling shot so much better. Right. So much better, uh, which even, it just blew my mind even more about Fellini's ability to shoot that. I still have not seen Eight and a Half. It's definitely, well, I can't say too much. I mean, it's the only Fellini I've seen all the way through, which I feel bad as a movie dork saying that. Yeah, same for me. I've never seen another Fellini. One of my favorite things in movies are when somebody gets thrown off a, a high altitude is just a dummy. Just, <laughs> just a very obvious dummy, like, couldn't be anything else and <laughs> even i mean it definitely cheapens like the effect but i would have loved that there just because i can i see past it and it only adds to movies for me yeah like they really chuck something over the side so, yeah <laughs> after mal falls off the roof this is where walker confronts carter and carter essentially agrees to pay him and then enlist Stegman to be his courier, correct? Yes. Uh, this this sets up my next favorite part of the movie, which is the exchange, the money, the money exchange in the L.A. River. So if I lived in L.A., could I just find an access port to this river? In movies, it seems like anyone can drive in the L.A. River at any time they want. Yeah, everybody's down there all the time. Can I go down there? You could drive your Mack truck. Also, why is the L.A. River... Has the L.A. River been full? Because every time I've seen it in a movie, it's it's a 150-foot-wide gorge to house a stream that's eight feet wide. Yes. So I don't with, understand what this thing is. The only time I've it. ever seen the L.A. River right. be useful is in the movie Volcano, where Tommy Lee Jones uses it to divert lava to the ocean. <laughs> but the L.A. River fascinates me for so many reasons, mainly because I don't understand it. But yeah, I love this part because this next part, jo Big John Stegman thinks he's hot shit, I guess, but he doesn't realize that the organization could not give half a shit about him <laughs> or what's going on. And so Stegman apparently is like not at all nervous about this or anything. So they give Stegman the money to hold on to. Uh, but Walker's clearly set up for that. So mm -hmm. Walker uh, gets Carter to go with him, but he forces Carter to go get the money. Now, this is where we see they have a sniper set up and Walker was indeed correct that it was a setup. A sniper played by Doogie Hauser's dad. Really? <laughs> yes. Wow. As soon as I saw him, I was like, wait a second. Wow. I trust that man. Why? Oh, because he's Doogie Hauser's dad. Yeah. So there, there's a great story in the commentary about that guy. He tried out for the role and didn't get it and then proceeded to stalk John Borman through his window for the preceding week. And finally, John Borman was like, okay, you get it. You got the role. Like, stop following me. <laughs> That's awesome. I feel like you hear about these casting stories in Hollywood, and you hear about the one time the actor got the part, but you don't hear about the 99 times the producer had the actor arrested for being a fucking weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, uh, Steven Soderbergh made the joke. You could either have hired him or arrested him. 
And you made the right choice. <laughs> so, Walker makes Carter walk out, and clearly the sniper's shooting who's ever walking out of the tunnel. And so this Carter tries to wave his arms and yell, It's Carter! But the sniper shoots him, and then of course, Big John Stegman, not realizing what's going on, also gets shot in the process. I love that the sniper had just set up, there's like, it's, it's a busy overpass over the LA River. There's cars going back and forth, but he just has his hood up. And so that's enough of right. like a distraction for drivers going by to not ask questions. So he just packs up his rifle, lowers the hood in his car, and slowly drives away. Just another sniper shooting in L.A. Walker <laughs> and Chris go out to dinner, and it's just a quick scene. But it reminded me so much of a similar scene in Thief, Michael Mann's Thief, when they go out to dinner. Like just the co the color timing and the way that it looks made me wonder if Michael Mann like pulled from this movie, which doesn't seem that far outside of possibility. That's another movie that I saw once and instantly became a favorite, but I need to go back and watch that. Thief is like Michael Mann's tryout run for Heat, and they both have the same problems for me, where they're both just too bloated. I think both have, like, excellent movies, but the whole story of, like, James Caan wanting to get a kid, and so then he adopts a kid, and stuff. Like, I don't care. <laughs> I just want to see James Caan <laughs> with a giant drill with like sparks shooting all over him and James Caan stealing shit. That's that's what I want to see out of a thief movie, James Caan, not James Caan trying to be a stepdad. Maybe Michael Mann had issues with his stepdad. There's a lot of those in his movies. Here, oh, we go to the house. Um, whose house is it? It's the... Brewster's. Brewster's house, yeah. Which... Looks like a house that I remember from Fast and Furious, because I think they also, the uh, the cops in that use one of the houses as a stakeout, and it also has a bridge over the pool. There's a, apparently a famous picture of the Beatles, <laughs> because they rented this house. Yeah, that was in the commentary. It was like a, a house for rent or something like that. So do you know at water parks, there's like the kids zone water parks where it's shallow pools yeah, yeah. and there's all sorts of bridges and water guns? That's exactly what this backyard of this house reminded me of. It just looks like the kids <laughs> zone at a, a water park. Uh, there, there's kind of yes pool houses all around it, but it's just palm trees and bright colors and light blue water. And it does not feel Southern California. This to me feels much more like something you would see in Miami or something. I don't know. It didn't have a Los Angeles Hills feel to it. Mm -hmm. This is where Chris and Walker, she finds out that they're there to stake out for the next day and she feels used. And so she beats the shit out of him and he doesn't, he doesn't react at all, which Until is amazing. She hits him with a <laughs> damn pool cue across his head. Yes. And that's like the first time we've seen him aside from being shot, have any kind of reaction to anything that's happened to him basically. Yes. So she apparently did not like him in real life. And that was life imitating art real <laughs> coming out just beating on him <laughs> that's amazing and i mean it it does not look like she held back at all <laughs> that whole sequence is cool like because she smacks him around and then she goes through the house like turning on all the appliances in this like ultra modern house and in the kitchen there's like a blender built into the countertop that blew my mind that was absurd <laughs> because she has another blender 
There's the cat. There's a blender <laughs> yes. built into the counter, and then five feet away from that, there's just a standard blender. Like, why spend eight thousand dollars on the built into the counter one if you're? Ugh. That was one of those things where, like, man, that's such like an '80s thing of like, oh, well, smoothies are the new hit thing, and they're super healthy, so right. everyone's gonna have a smoothie machine constantly in their kitchen. So, <laughs> I don't know if you guys saw this the same way I did. But it seemed like there was a lot of Angie Dickinson's performance in this movie in Jennifer Lopez's performance in Out of Sight. Mm. I saw a lot of like connection between how tough the characters are. I know that was just the thing that like occurred to me, the way that they, they carry themselves. I can see that for sure. Yeah, especially uh, the front half of Out of Sight. Before the, the timeout scene. After she beats the shit out of them, they have sex. Yes. Very healthy. Very, very healthy. <laughs> and so this is another thing that's funny about this movie is that the timing of things is not perfect. So so often in a in a revenge movie, you feel like the character arrives at a house and then an hour or two hours later, the bad guy will then show up. Well, no, Walker and Chris stay there all night and we cut to the next morning. And so they basically had like a miniature vacation. Right. Having sex, breaking pool tables... Messing around with the PA system. They've been there for like 12 hours <laughs> by the time Brewster arrives. During that time, Walker has flashbacks. It kind of starts tying everything together, at least in this dream logic way, where he has flashbacks of being on Alcatraz and flashbacks of his wife and her overdose. Brewster shows up, uh, played by Carol O'Connor. Just from the like moment one, I love this dude. I think he's such a, a good, one of the top mobsters, and he brings so much um, personality and kind of warmth with him as a person that is just interesting I oh well, i didn't realize that he was archie bunker yes wow uh he's great because he's so clearly like <laughs> he's so high in the organization that he doesn't feel threatened by anything apparently so like this whole time he never at any point seems to show fear or anything about this not until is it walker shoots the yeah, phone walker again <laughs> smashes i love when lee marvin is shoot uh just smashing in inanimate objects in this movie <laughs> <laughs> that, when he does he shoot the phone or does he smash the phone i think he shoots it. it it's so funny because all he wants is his money i mean he doesn't care about the money he's not gonna he doesn't seem like the guy that's gonna go spend it what's he gonna do with ninety thousand dollars only about the principal at this point i love this little interaction between the two of them because walker seems confused for the first time like when brewster tells him he's like i've got 11 dollars in my pocket nobody deals in cash anymore <laughs> he just, he's like it's all numbers in a bank it's it's all fake it's made up <laughs> because the enterprise the or the organization rather makes millions he's like certainly you guys have got to have ninety three thousand dollars sitting around somewhere that you can give me and it i mean even at the time it can't be that much money that yeah. It's like, he's made it this far, Yeah, just pay the dude, but they don't. <laughs> and that's where they go wrong. Until uh, he, Brewster gets intimidated, and he tells him the only place that there's a that cash changes hands like that anymore is the Alcatraz drop, which they change to Fort Point, supposedly, I mean, I'm guessing because of what happened at Alcatraz. So Fort Point, uh, I also went there on my San Francisco trip, and I have a picture like, Kind of in the center where the helicopter lands. Oh, interesting. I thought, sorry, Austin. I thought that was on Alcatraz also. Nope. It's such a, like a Roman Coliseum looking yeah. pit 
like it it definitely feels like a fight is about to break out and it's just it's so cool with like the repeated architecture of those arches on the one side that go all the way up and kind of the the ladders and everything on the other side that place was windy as hell too oh yeah <laughs> i realized i was like right on the you're, <laughs> it sits right underneath the golden gate bridge they were going to destroy it when they built the bridge, but they changed the design so that the supports go right over and kind of straddle the fort there. Also, the exterior of the fort was used in Vertigo. When Madeline falls into the water, she goes oh, and cool. throws the flower petals, and then she falls in and Scotty rescues her. That's right there in the parking area, basically a four point. That's cool. Oh, I, yeah, I remember that shot. Makes me really mad because I've been to, I've only been to San Francisco twice, but I think I maybe one of the times I had seen this movie already, and I wish I would have made more of an attempt to find the locations. When I was in San Francisco and I lived there, I only went to see, like, where Homeward Bound 2 was shot. <laughs> 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 I also went and had a great burrito because of Velveeta. So, oh yeah, on the mission, there's some good. There's some good burritos there. Yep. Um, so we are at Fort Point now, and yeah, there's about to be another drop. That tiny helicopter, that tiny helicopter that they fly in, is the coolest little thing mm -hmm. in the world because it basically looks like a motorcycle version of a helicopter. Like the thing is big enough for one man and one duffel bag, and that's it. That's all mm -hmm. that's gonna fit in there. And he's flying this thing around in pitch black at night <laughs> in the Bay Area. I want to know more about that helicopter pilot after this movie. <laughs> it's got to be windy as hell up there, too. Yeah, he's yeah. got to have balls of steel to be out there. That's insane. Um, yeah, this this finale surprised me, how this 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 set piece ended up. Mm -hmm. I, I, I just wasn't quite expecting this this kind of ending. Because we get this is where the reveal happens, that... Brewster yells out, that's Fairfax. You know, that's, that's the guy you've been looking for the whole time, and it's goddamn Yost the whole time right. right in front of Walker's face. It's a great reveal. Do you think that the, the brick of money, it looks just like the brick that they used earlier in the L.A. River that turned out to be all paper. Is this brick of money, is it real, or was he set up again? This, this organization is so cheap, they definitely <laughs> used paper again. I feel like it's real money. I, I think everyone's not taking Walker seriously up until this point, but he keeps making them pay for it over and over and over again, you know? No, no, I'd be surprised if they tried to do the same con on him again of sending a brick full of blank paper, mm -hmm. but you never know. They've shown themselves to be extremely hubristic. Is that a word? Full of hubris? Ooh, it is now. <laughs> it's like when I made up the word majestical on this podcast. <laughs> so, yeah, this movie ends on a weird note because it's kind of ambiguous altogether of what Walker does. Because Walker doesn't even, Walker doesn't show up for the final fight. Kind of hangs in the shadows, right? Right. Who shoots Brewster? The sniper does, correct? Was Did Walker shoot him or did the sniper? I thought the sniper had... The same sniper that we saw before, I thought he was the one that had. Yeah, it was Doogie Hauser's dad again, because he comes down the stairs then and leaves with Fairfax slash Ghost. Yeah, I think he says something about killing Walker, and then Fairfax says the deal's done, Walker. And he invites him to, like, come and work for the organization, and Walker just stays in the shadows. Yeah, and so we basically have a job offer on the table for Walker. 
and a package of what might be money <laughs> or might not be left for him. And that's basically it. I think the last shot we see of Lee Marvin is just him backing up into the shadows of of Fort Point in, on one of the levels. I don't think we see him again after that, do we? No, because uh, it's Brewster. Brewster's body laying there is the last thing we see. And the camera pulls up and shows Alcatraz in the distance. Cool ending. I like that spotlight on that body. In the end, it just it just looked very iconic and big. So yeah, what you what you make of how this movie ended? Did you miss him taking revenge on on uh, Fairfax at the end? Did you want Walker to kill everybody? How how'd you take it? I wanted him to get his ninety three thousand dollars. <laughs> like that's the stated purpose. <laughs> People dying was not actually his goal. It just was a byproduct. So Brewster Mal. The dude that got punched in the dick. All these people. (laughs) (laughs) It's just him on the hunt for the money. So I feel like him getting his money back. I don't like that his wife died. That still upsets me. You know, I think she was shitty in the beginning, but she does claim she wanted to get back with him and she felt bad about it. So I don't know about that, but. Yeah, but he really, throughout the course of this revenge movie, he really subdued in his violence, isn't he? Yeah, that, that was a point they brought up in the commentary that I didn't make the connection of but he doesn't intentionally kill anyone <laughs> i mean maybe he killed the punch in the balls guy but we don't we don't know that but everybody he we see him interact with presumably is not dead directly because of him yeah i think it's interesting because it, it does show him to be a more passive character i mean not like in his actions because he's you know definitely striding forward but he's not really violent. He does break into that room and shoot the shit out of that bed, uh, which if Mal had been on yes. it, he'd be dead. But That's the most violent thing. It's the mattress and the perfume bottles. Those are the most violent, the, the, yes. the biggest victims of this movie, aside from his poor wife. <laughs> I did not realize, I didn't notice until the credits that Sid Haig was one of the guards in the uh, penthouse apartment, apparently. I was realizing that just looking up cast members before this. I've only seen him as Captain Spaulding in the Rob Zombie movies. I don't I don't know him from anything else, I don't think. At least not off the top of my head. He he is not in our second movie, but he is in Jackie Brown, which we talked about, which is also the an, an Elmer Leonard story. So I, I, there's a roundabout connection there and Haig was an interesting dude in that he was in foxy brown he was in spider baby he was in the movies that the later filmmakers are riffing on uh and that they're calling back to the jack hill stuff yeah and i think that's it's interesting that that dude's career went that long i mean he started in a jack hill movie when did he he died like a year ago um two years ago now or a year and a half, September of 2019. Wasn't that long ago? Okay. But yeah, he was 80 years old uh, at the time, which still bums me out because he was working right up until the end. He seemed like a really nice guy from behind the scenes stuff and yeah, he, interactions he awesome. with fans and things like that. <laughs> Typically see nothing but good things written about him. Yeah. Well, guys, what out of five would you guys... Give this movie point blank. I feel bad because I love both of these movies. Like, I feel like I'm almost not qualified to make statements on their quality because I love them so much. I gave it four and a half on Letterboxd. Yeah, you don't have to. (laughs) 
I understand some movies are tough, but <laughs> Austin, how about you? If you peruse my letterbox, it is very inconsistent and has no rhyme or reason to it. This one, I mean, I, I think originally I did give it four and a half. On the second viewing, I bumped it up to a five because any movie that stays in my head and like just occupies any space at all, I feel like is worthy of a five-star rating because <laughs> I forget most of the movies I watch. Oh, yeah. If it wasn't for Letterboxd, I wouldn't remember most of the shit I watch. Anything that sticks around, I've got to give it to. It has such a good mood that I, that I enjoy. Got the crime elements I love, um, the visual elements I really enjoy. It's not entirely straightforward. There's stuff you can take from it. There's different viewpoints to it. I don't I don't know. It, there's something about those crime serials. I, I'm I'm not even like a like an expert on those, but they something about those just gravitate towards me i don't know something something about those are just cool to me yeah i think this especially for a first time watching this really enjoyed this one i thought it was just so solidly acted and directed it was some cool editing and stuff. I, uh, really good just um uh, four out of five for me definitely one i would rewatch multiple times and you know potentially on rewatches it might be one of those growers that keeps moving up and up in my ratings because there, there's a couple movies that I've seen where the first time I watch it, I thought it was good, but it didn't quite grab me. And then the second or third time, I start to kind of get a feel for the tone of it or something that I can't quite describe. And suddenly that movie's a part of me. And even if it's not perfect, it's a 5 out of 5 for me. So I totally get where you're coming from, Austin. For me, like I have found more to like about this movie each time I've watched it. This time, I think I especially appreciated Angie Dickinson as Chris, the performance that she gives and kind of... She's not given a whole lot to say dialogue wise. It's definitely, a, you know, a dude's movie. And I think she does a really good job of portraying like a conflicted character. Something I took from the commentary that was pretty interesting. Apparently, Lee Marvin had a lot. Uh, well, he he deferred the uh, final cut to uh, John Borman, but he still had a lot to do with the directing and kind of i guess day-to-day -day of the shooting and I, I don't know he he seems like a he seems very masculine and that's not what i would really expect of that to be kind of mm -hmm. have much creative input in that and i thought that was pretty neat to hear that well good so all the way around thumbs up it's a love fest oh yeah hell yeah I, i'd <laughs> recommend this to anyone i i think it's also got a nice runtime on it, 92 minutes. So you're you're in and you're out. So Austin, we let you pick point blank, and then the way Josh and I to let a few, uh, listeners know in the future how we're gonna deal with guests is we're gonna let the guest pick the movie, and then Josh and I are going to then pick the response, basically the movie that's gonna pair it. So Austin really wanted to talk point blank, and Josh, being a huge Soderbergh head, decided that uh, we should pair this one with Out of Sight. So, Josh, please please take it away. Out of Sight is it's just one of my favorite movies. It's one of my comfort films. And it is, like, technically so well done, so precisely done, that it's, for me, it's a marvel. Like, just the performances, the editing, uh, the soundtrack, I think, is, is so on point. It's you know, been one of my favorites for 25 years now, almost. 
<laughs> ever since I saw it. And I was definitely in the the grip of um, the Elmore Leonard phase when this was happening, when it came out. It was kind of like the first wave of uh, that for me. So it hit right at that sweet spot for me as well. What's the context for when did you see this? What age were you? What were you into at the time? Like, because this movie definitely feels very 90s, especially as soon as you see the title intro and the the freeze frames Mm -hmm. and the way the text is kind of unaligned from itself. So it looks typewriter punkish. There's so many things in this that are so 1998. So what's your context? Because I was 12 years old. Um, or no, I was 11 because I'm August born. So I was 11 years old when this came out. I was, uh, 19, had just turned 19 when this came out. And I was already deep into Pulp Fiction, everything that Tarantino was doing. The fact that this was produced by Danny DeVito because he had produced, um, uh, Get Shorty a couple years earlier. Which I also loved. Never seen it. I, I've seen it once. I need to give it give it another chance. I don't know. It, it, it didn't completely work for me, but good movies don't always hit the first time for me. I don't know. I think it was like right in that sweet spot. Also, uh, I had really liked Clooney. Uh, I was a big ER fan, and I really liked him in From Dust Till Dawn which I think was the only other thing I had seen him in, on the big screen at least. I know he had been in, in a ton of television. What? Um, Sorry. Um, when? What year was From Dust Till Dawn? Two years before, I think. Or three years before, like 95? No, 96 was From Dust Till Dawn, so two years before. Clooney, I've seen From Dust Till Dawn many times. It's the movie, I saw it when I was 17 or something. So I saw it in about 2003. <laughs> mm-hmm. And for me, it was one that... I think I knew it was kind of vampire-ish, but I didn't know what it was. And so I either, I think I bought it on DVD. I used to just buy Circuit City DVDs just like on on a whim. I remember it blowing my mind, the transition halfway. But I remember also thinking like, <laughs> wow, yes. I'm buying George Clooney in this with the neck tattoo and George Clooney saying lines like, right. listen, if you run, I have six little friends and they all run a lot faster than you. Uh, talking about his gun and shit like, like <laughs> but i bought it I, so i was like oh man clooney's badass and then you see him in this movie and it's like oh there's there's a direct line from his from dust till dawn character to this i don't know if he was just he was more threatening obviously in from dust till dawn but this one he's like he's figured out like the charmy smile smirk thing that this entire movie relies on George Clooney being sexy. Oh, yeah. If George Clooney is not sexy and charismatic, this movie does not work in the slightest. I feel like I grew up with uh, Clooney and Brad Pitt being, like, the guys. Mm-hmm. Like, they they weren't necessarily considered the best at acting or whatever, but they were kind of the hot guys. I don't know. Growing up, just kind of assumed they didn't live up to that. And then, as I watched more movies, I was like, "These dudes are awesome!" Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they they both have their bag, and out of sight is definitely George Clooney's bag. If you watch Brad yes. Pitt and Snatch, you, you can't say that 
he's a shit actor or so like brad pitt is amazing and that and that was the movie that turned me on brad pitt i'm like okay this guy he may be a stunningly handsome man who can do whatever the hell he wants but that doesn't mean he's not talented speaking of which i really want to rewatch ad astra because i don't think i gave it a shot and now having a dad who died a few years ago i feel like that movie's meant for people like me basically (laughs) so i want to rewatch it oh that movie destroyed me Oh, that one was. Yeah, I, I, it was I great. Think one week, I'll just have like the Dead Dad marathon and watch Field of Dreams, Ad Astra, um, <laughs> any any of the other movies I've been avoiding. <laughs> I mean, my God, if I cried during Annihilation, think of what will happen to me then. You're right. This is exactly like Clooney coming into his full Clooniness. I feel like it's this is a side that he didn't necessarily get to play you know he was definitely uh charming in er and everything else he had done but he's a little bit dumb in this as well which i love he's like he's not always the fastest guy in the room which i think is great it's just like he has a certain something and you know it's that je ne sais quoi that uh you know people are bemoaning the lack of in more Uh, modern stars like we just don't see this kind of charisma anymore which maybe john ham can kind of pull off the get in the same category but i still don't think he's he's as good i I won't act like i know enough between westlake to leonard but i feel like uh westlake has kind of the the nasty criminal whereas leonard is kind of the it's like they're almost the good guy, kind of funny, funny dudes in the criminal world. I don't know. It, there's a lot of bumbling and a lot of guys who have half a plan, but a full plate of confidence. <laughs> I'd really tie this movie or his character to, oh, brother, where art thou? You know, his, his yes. character, oh, yeah. oh, brother, where art thou, is very similar to this guy. He's kind of a... A greasy con man, but in that one, it's just he's a little more southern and a little bit funnier. But it's still Clooney just working again on that charm factor and just those little side smiles and things mm-hmm. that he does. Uh, this movie would be really, really creepy and weird if <laughs> if he didn't pull it off. Basically, we start with George Clooney as Jack Foley, like just being incredibly handsome and Soderbergh shoots him so well uh, to set him up uh, in this movie. This one also jumps around in time. So we're not sure when we're seeing this from, um, but he walks out of a building, tears off his tie, throws it on the ground, spots a bank and decides to rob it. It's like within a few seconds, this is, this is happening. And he walks into the bank with a plan and no weapon. Which well, is again, amazing, I love similar to the editing in um, Point Blank. I love the freeze frame on the title shot because it's Clooney mm-hmm. as a complete blur, slamming his uh, tie down as everyone else who's walking around him is just frozen still as they normally would appear. So it's actually a really cool uh, yes. shot to have a freeze frame on. He goes into the bank. He tells the teller that he's robbing it and that his associate is talking to the manager. Um, and that 
if she doesn't give him the money, he's going to signal his associate who's going to shoot the manager. She gives him the money. Like, <laughs> it's great. It's <laughs> he's and he tells her that she's doing well. He charms her in the middle of the house. I also love that he's showing all the intricate knowledge of things like I don't want bank bank bands on these bills. I don't want the bottom dollar bill mm -hmm. in any of the drawers. All these little things that I guess only bankers or bank robbers or the one out of 10 bank robbers, as we hear later, know about these things. Yeah, I, I would definitely uh, end up with the ones that turn my face blue. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> 100%. He walks out of the bank and goes to his shitty little car and gets in it, and it doesn't start. <laughs> Which is just... It's great. Later, we'll find out why he was pissed off, but he was pissed off and decided to go back to bank robbing and gets picked up immediately. And his response is just kind of like to shrug his shoulders. It's, nah. Like, ah, <laughs> oh, damn it. It's just, it's like, it's a rough day. It's nothing too bad, though. We cut to Glade's correctional facility. Uh, Foley is playing basketball and like just getting outclassed by everybody, which I thought was a nice touch. Uh, he looks like he's diving after the ball and just sweating his ass off. He talks to a couple of the other convict convicts played by Louise Guzman and somebody else who's not Louise Guzman. Um, <laughs> but it doesn't matter because Louise Guzman is so good. I was he so excited to see him because I, I, I know Louise Guzman mainly because of community and he's kind of a running joke in that show. And he actually <laughs> appears in one episode and he, he seemed to be a real good sport about the whole thing. Um, but I haven't seen Boogie mm -hmm. Nights, and I know that's, I think, his most famous role. But he's hilarious, and he's going for it in this movie. Anytime he's on camera, he is just, you know, one of those actors who's chewing the scenery as much as possible. <laughs> and it's great. It's so delightful yes. to watch. So much energy on, on the camera. This uh, basketball scene, I happened to notice he was wearing, uh, Clooney was wearing chuck taylor's and i had to wonder if that was the only time in his life he, <laughs> he has worn those <laughs> definitely since then that's the only time it's either at this point he talks to luis guzman and tells him oh you moved the date up didn't you and we're shown that clooney is a very smart mm -hmm. uh, perceptive man because he he saw them saving their legs so that way they can run the hundred miles to miami which is their, their destination. Uh, seems wild to me. And then after this, we see we're witnessed like the most random prison murder scene I've seen in a while where all the guys are walking in line. And I, I believe is it's Cheadle, right? Who Cheadle and his buddy who shift this guy to death. Yeah. And everyone just keeps walking. Oh, yeah, that was brutal. And but that was the guy that Cheadle was boxing later that he takes a dive to and so he was getting his oh, his honor back okay. i guess uh i didn't quite during that. That. i just yeah. know that they called him mad dog on the streets so he's called snoopy <laughs> snoopy and, yes uh, from what i see of don Cheadle in this movie i would not call that man snoopy as we'll see later no no <laughs> Uh, Foley calls his ex-wife Adele, played by Catherine Keener, um, and 
tells her, like, they moved the date up, um, call the other guys and have them meet me uh, when I make this prison break. The other guys being Ving Rames as Buddy and oh. Uh, oh. Steve Zahn. Oh, Steve Zahn <laughs> as in Glenn. this movie. Man. <laughs> He's zoning oh, it up he's real such a hard in this he's, movie. Oh, he's it's excellent. Great. I didn't realize how much I liked him until uh, uh, the Gorley and Russ Discord has had some wash-alongs that have really shown some light. Wait, wait on which one? Steve's on. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think it was Joyride that like opened my eyes. Uh, yeah, that's a good Zon. The best Zon is Saving Silverman. Ooh. I have not seen that. Oh, That's okay. It's been a while since I've seen that one, yeah. <laughs> so Steve's on in this movie. Uh, uh, George Clooney's like, if I see his fucking sunglasses, I'm either going to smash them on the ground or I'm going to smash them on the ground with his head still on them. <laughs> and you finally yeah. see Steve's on and it's like, oh, I get why he hates those sunglasses because he has this ridiculous quaff hair with the headband and these douchebag sunglasses that he likes to wear indoors. <laughs> that that definitely made me laugh when he he raises them up and says i see better with them on, them on. Uh, yeah <laughs> um and so this is where steve zahn whose character's name is glenn glenn michaels uh he tells them that there's a guy who told him who was in jail that uh oh the, the that's later oh, that's the later. information about the plan what do you think about buddy when he steals this car from this woman, do you remember he, uh, he's in a parking lot trying to break into a car and he sees the woman putting groceries in her car and he walks over and very politely puts the groceries in the car. (laughs) And the woman says, I didn't ask for any help, so I'm not going to give you a tip. And he goes, that's okay. I'll just take your car. I think that's so good. the perfect tone of joke for Ving Rhames in that time period because Ving Rhames plays this character mm-hmm. like the best friend. He does it in <clears throat> Mission Impossible. Um, he has some jokes similar to this one when he's the the cop in Dawn of the Dead. Uh, Ving Rhames, mm-hmm. uh, even in um, right around this time, People Under the Stairs. He's just really, he's really dialed in. If you ever watch, oh yeah, um, I can't. Uh, he won an Emmy for something at the around this time or an Oscar. I can't remember, but it's excellent. But he's so dialed in, and he just plays that role perfectly. He's the best. He's one of the best sidekicks of this time that could be cast because he's instantly, for some reason, just completely lovable. Even if he's stealing a woman's car, but the way he does it, saying that this is my tip for helping mm-hmm. you with your groceries, which I'm then taking with me. So. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that, once again, he does this with no force. He is a large, intimidating man who you would expect, like, the first thought would be to beat the shit out of someone and take the car from him. But no, he just kind of does it in this really charming amusing way yeah he's he's the quintessential lovable criminal yes uh then we go to meet the rest of our crew uh the rest of the cast rather 
with Dennis Farina and Jennifer Lopez as father and daughter. Uh, Jennifer Lopez plays Karen Sisko, uh, which they did a a spinoff series with her character later, but not played by her, which I think is why Dennis Farina is playing cousin Avi from Snatch. (laughs) It's like, because I, I saw... I saw Dennis Farina for the first time ever in Snatch, so that's always my anchor point with him. But watching this movie, yes. it's like, it's just the same guy. It's like the same, like, Chicago, no-bullshit kind of mover. And, oh, coming up is such a great cameo. I, I, I'm excited to talk about this cameo coming up here. And, uh, I, is it, it's coming up soon, I think. <laughs> Have y'all watched Justified? Yeah, I didn't finish it. I need to finish it. It's one of those weird shows where I, it's like, kind of made for me. Because I, I live in Knoxville, and I'm not that far from Kentucky, and get a lot of the, like, the kind of culture they're going for. And it, I, I, I don't know if it's like the plot that didn't quite land for me, but uh, uh, it, it's got a lot of the characters that Leonard goes for, and it's pretty enjoyable. Mm-hmm. How far in? How far into Justified did you make it? Because I made it. It was about four seasons or so. I remember Amy Smart was on the show, and she was like the love interest. And I think that's around where I dropped off. But Walton Goggins was amazing on that show. I also really liked the the father character. Um, that's a good show. I should. I want to rewatch it. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know his name, but yeah, he is good. I, I ended up finishing it, I think it was late last year. I think if you watch it, you'll probably, there's a lot of people that would probably enjoy it. Um, <laughs> just the nature of TV, it was a little meandering for me. That's, have you read any of the, the Raylan Givens books? I don't, no, I have not. I, I've read like one Elmer Leonard book and I really liked it. And then typical me have not read anything in 10 years since then. And so I, I really need to get on it. Dennis Farina gives uh, JLo a little gun as a present, a little six hour 380. Like it's the most normal thing in the world. Yes. He's and maybe this is where I show that I'm from California. But in California, we don't give each other guns. That's not really a thing that happens. But maybe I'm just myopic in other parts of the country. You do. There, it was load. There was bullets in the clip. Like it, that thing was ready to go. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she could have shot the place up in mere moments if she decided to. But I suspect they were both packing because I think both characters yeah. are. Uh, law enforcement agents of some type of some stripe or he he has a uh he's a guard now he runs like a private security firm that's what it is dennis farina is a scary dude he just yeah, he has it, that look yeah it's just intense I, <laughs> that guy ever threatened me at a bar I'm just like uh, i'm gonna go home now man <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember which movie it is, but all I can do is picture him screaming. Probably Snatch. He's yeah. he's fucking amazing in Snatch. I love his performance so much in that movie. 
He's so funny. And he's uh, he's in Michael Mann stuff, too. He plays, he's Jack, Jack Crawford, the original Jack Crawford in Manhunter. Oh, nice. George is about to do an episode of Manhunter with Umar, I think, which I'm excited to listen to. I haven't seen that movie in like 15 years. They just put it up on Shudder, if any of you guys have that. Oh, wow. Manhunter's really good. Let me, uh, I'm just going to take this uh, soapbox to say that Red Dragon sucks. Okay, I'm going to take a counter soapbox <laughs> to say that Teenage Me thought Red Dragon kicked ass and Ray Fiennes was incredible. <laughs> I still think I stand behind Ray Fiennes' performance. I, I think that's probably my biggest gripe is that Edward Norton is like the ultimate lukewarm actor. He can, like, convince you that you like him, but he can also do the opposite. Back at the prison, uh, Buddy pulls in the parking lot right behind Karen, who's there to do something. I'm not quite sure what. And it's just serendipitous that she's there right when the prison break is supposed to take place. Uh, Two guys pop out of the tunnel. And it's uh, Luis Guzman and his buddy. And then two other guys pop out of the tunnel and get shot immediately. Jennifer Lopez is standing there with a shotgun and seems unfazed by automatic rifle fire happening 10 feet in front of her. Yes. Like (laughs) these guys pop out of the ground and she's seems kind of mildly amused by the whole situation and pulls out (laughs) her shotgun into this. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, when they start shooting the the prisoners, she seems kind of annoyed more than anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting response she has. Yeah. And um, oh, God, this scene. Go then, on. Go ahead. Uh, Foley comes out wearing a guard's uniform. Uh, he comes out of the hole, like, covered in muck, so nobody can really see who he is. Um, he looks like the creature from the Black Lagoon. Like... <laughs> <laughs> he tries to say later, like, I got to wash this mud off me. I'm like, dude, that's not mud. You're either in sewage or an oil slick. Because that's yeah. like, you have black goop hanging off of you. And this is the part <laughs> I have the hardest problem with this movie is, essentially, these characters fall in love at first sight. But the first time she sees Clooney, he's a swamp monster. <laughs> It feels very, uh, oh, brother, where are you? Yes. Yeah, it's definitely, it's over the top. It's ridiculous. Like it, like it's the same character transported to the 90s almost. Yeah. Uh, Buddy and Jack grab Karen and shove her in the trunk of the car before she can shoot them. Um, and they take her shotgun away and Foley gets in the trunk behind her to hide as Buddy leaves, which I don't know why they wouldn't be searching all the cars that leave the prison. Like, I guess they can't set up the roadblocks fast enough, but shouldn't there be like a guard shack? (laughs) I think, I think there is a line about it being so quick that they don't get caught, but yeah, I mean, (laughs) yeah, they they should be caught. (laughs) And, oh, then we get the scene. We get the great flirtation scene with a, covered in goop uh george clooney being charming as hell in this stuck in a trunk with jennifer lopez it's yeah beautifully done clooney's the big spoon lopez is the little spoon (laughs) yes important to note and also please note that trunks 
have a very sexy red light that is constantly on as you drive around, mm-hmm. and we just don't even oh, know yeah. it. Very ambient. The original cut of this, it was just like one shot of them in the trunk. They didn't uh, have any cutaways to what was happening outside, um, and it was, you know, didn't play nearly as well. I really uh, think the editing and the soundtrack get dialed in on this mm-hmm. scene. This scene is where it's like, you get those bass lines coming in that's kind of like this like weird smooth jazz funky bass lines mm-hmm. combining that with their conversation and the close-up shot of his fingers tapping her thigh and stuff and then shooting around outside the car uh, this is where i the that kind of montage feeling and just this noir feeling of this movie for me really sinks in yeah well the noir uh when ebert watched the movie he compared them to uh, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall like really gave him high praise for this scene in particular which I think is just fantastic it's a great scene and it's you see why these two people are, are movie stars All right, I'm bringing it back on track here thank you do you guys know the game Deadly Premonition yes I do no what is this Deadly Premonition is a game that was made in Japan and it's basically a Twin Peaks remake and so there's a very large world map, and this game is full of bizarre Twin Peaks-esque characters. But one thing that happens throughout the game is the main character has conversations with an unseen character named Zack, which is basically in his head. So oftentimes when you're driving around in the world, he'll go, Hey, Zack, do you remember that 1986 movie, Chud? That was wild. <laughs> Directed by Leonard Bertrand and starring Hud. And man, did she glisten on the screen. And so this is what that conversation felt like to me was the game Deadly Premonition where all of a sudden characters are just randomly reminiscing about movies that came out 15 to 25 years ago at least. Uh We're talking about some oldies in this scene. Um, But this is the part where it's like, this movie is so weird. This is the part where it's like, can I wrap my head around this or not? That this love at first sight is so strong that they're acting like the, it, it, this movie exists in some fantasy world that I I'm, can't quite dial into or not. I'm not quite sure if I can make the leap with it. Well, they talk about like the film gets meta in this scene because they talk about the movie Three Days of the Condor with uh, Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway famously, supposedly falling in love in the middle of this high-stakes situation very fast. And so, like, they make reference to that as something that people have disbelieved for years, and then they go ahead and do it in this movie anyway. Which, I mean, you know, I, like, I like the balls of basically pointing out the flaw that everyone's going to say about your movie. And then yes. just calling it out in front of them to the, basically take their power away, of acknowledging that, yeah, this is this sounds preposterous, but we're doing it anyways. So that these lines were written by Scott Frank, um, who also wrote Minority Report. Um, he wrote uh, Logan from a couple years ago for James Mangold, and he wrote and directed pretty much all of The Queen's Gambit this last year on his own. Uh, Those are all things I enjoyed. Yes. 
Minority Report, I feel like, gets undersold. That I, I, I just love that movie I, so much. Oh, yeah. Uh, 100% agree with you. I think that movie is so rewatchable. So, <laughs> so I have not seen E.T. I feel like that is my Spielberg's E.T. <laughs> <laughs> Austin, you haven't seen E.T.? Yes, I have not seen E.T. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Uh, I got to go see it. I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. Um, or no, I hadn't seen it since the controversial cut came out where they took the guns away and gave walkie-talkies to the FBI agents. Um, <laughs> I hadn't seen it from then until last year. We went to the drive-in, um, and I took my one of my daughters up with me, and it was her first time seeing it. Um, and I got choked up again as a 40-year-old man or 41-year-old man, <laughs> however old I was, seeing this movie again. Uh, it brought me back to childhood, like, immediately. Like any movie, I'll, I'll see it eventually. It, it, I'm sure it'll happen. I'm told as a child I adored E.T., and I once said, God bless the E.T. tape when I was doing Grace at dinner time. <laughs> but the last time I remember watching it, we had family friends over and I had a stomach ache. My mom's like, here, take this Tums. And it was like a big wafer Tums that you were supposed to chew. But I didn't want to chew it mm -hmm. because I was like, Ooh, it's gross. I'm just going to swallow it like a pill. So I tried to swallow it and it got like halfway down past my windpipe. It just like stuck in between my <laughs> stomach and like didn't make it down. And so we were all yeah. watching E.T. and I remember feeling this Tums like stuck in my esophagus. And then <laughs> I ran to the kitchen and started puking in the sink. And so now anytime I think of E.T. I just think puking in the sink. That was my last memory I ever watched that movie. So if I watched it now as a 34-year-old man, I, guarantee, I can almost guarantee you I'm bawling my eyes out at some point in that movie. Yes. Josh, if you ever, if you just ever want to have like a, an episode where we just like break each other emotionally my movie is <laughs> homeward bound i still can't watch it oh. nor can i talk about it i i haven't seen that <laughs> since childhood and i know neither have i here. neither I have it, i and there's for good reason i know it cannot be good it good in the emotional sense listen i yeah. have a dog that's 12 years old almost 12 years old right now and he's a big dog i can't be watching homeward bound okay <laughs> I, Oof, no, I, I feel like my that. voice just cracked just saying that sentence. I lived homeward bound last year, like the first month into the pandemic when my cat ran away. So I know the I know oh. the movie. She came back like four days later, so I'm I'm definitely the weak one here. But so uh, they have their flirtation scene. The car stops. Jack gets out of the trunk. In the trunk also is the pistol that Karen's dad gave her, which she immediately grabs and starts just blasting through the trunk, through the lid. Like, she could have easily shot Jack or Buddy I was right in that moment. I thought she was just a terrible shot initially, but then as the movie <laughs> evolves, you, it's clearly like she doesn't want to kill either of them. And so the yes. fact that she's firing vertically, no, she can hear Clooney's voice off the driver's side of the car as she's still firing vertically through the trunk lid. Yes. Uh, and this is where we meet Steve Zahn, wearing his sunglasses. He's like, uh, he, he reminds me of Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. Oh, yeah. he, he's, he's just an icon. I feel like he doesn't get his, his due. 
I don't know if Steve Zahn is an icon. I don't yes, know if he, we can get away with that. Steve Zahn is I'm, an I'm icon. I'm calling it. Steve wow. Zahn oh icon. Okay, you know what? I like it. When you just said that as a complete <laughs> sentence, it had such a ring to it that now I am 100% on board. <laughs> I, I've, I've, I've reversed my decision. Steve Zahn is an icon. That's... Uh, I remember him from Reality Bites and That Thing You Do. Oh, yeah. Uh, that Thing You SB. Do. Yeah, I haven't seen that. That Thing You Do is very good. It's very long, but a very good movie. I've never seen Reality Bites. That was a movie for, like, my sisters who were six and nine years older than me. They were more of the MTV yeah. age where I watched MTV, but I was a kid. Yeah, I was, like, the exact right age to still look up to those people who were in the movie. Like, cause I'm just slightly younger than them, uh, and think that that's what life was going to be like. And it was going to be cool. And it was going to be all Ethan hockey. Yeah. But, uh, we, Oh, Glenn gets in one of the cars. Um, buddy and Jack are outside talking and, uh, Karen, they stick her in the car with Glenn, uh, because Jack doesn't want to get rid of her. Like, they could have just left her in the trunk, but they, they talk her into coming out without shooting anybody. And she talks Glenn into leaving the other guys there by the side of the road. Basically saying that she remembers him from uh, him going to court and she had to escort him at one point in time. And you can easily talk circles around Glenn Michaels. You can tell. Um, he's not the quick, fastest brain... character is like play-doh uh, you can wrap that brain around <laughs> yes. your finger with no trouble whatsoever yeah which again is a real and... tribute to steve zahn's performance in this which is <laughs> iconic <laughs> <laughs> now we jump back in time to lompoc prison where jack buddy and glenn all first met we also meet snoopy played by Don Cheadle, and Ripley, played by Albert Brooks. And this is where we find out that um, Glenn tells Jack and Buddy that Ripley has uh, $5 million worth of uncut diamonds at his house, like just sitting in his house somewhere um, up in Detroit. And Ripley has been a motor mouth about it. Jack's been, a, or uh, Glenn's been a motor mouth about it. Um they're not the smart criminals <laughs> that Jack and Buddy seem to be. It took me a long time to realize this was Albert Brooks. Because mm -hmm. he just looks so odd. Oh, especially Cause... like... Because uh, he's balding in the movie and kind of like frumpy looking. And not that Albert Brooks is like a strapping man or anything. But uh, yeah, he doesn't look like himself. Wait. Um... I'm trying to picture now. You guys are blowing my mind here. That's Albert Brooks? <laughs> I, think it's yes. the, I think it's the fact that his hair is straight in this movie, and it's like a comb-over versus normally... Albert Brooks is normally mm -hmm. a fuzzhead for me when I've seen him. Yes. Wow. Whoa, that blew my mind just now. The, there's some prosthetics on his <laughs> face, too, that just... Okay. ...alter his image. Uh, uh, it took me... It was literally like the last half of the movie when I realized, oh, this is him. 
Yeah. I think maybe he's got some like some dentures in or something um, that are kind of different than his own because his mouth wor- looks like it works funny. Um, but he's basically a rich guy who got sent to, to prison on um, some kind of white collar crime. Um, I don't remember, you know, he was laundering money for somebody or something. Um, and everybody takes turns beating on him, essentially. <laughs> even though he tries to buy himself the nice life while he's in prison. Um, back in the current timeline, Jack and Buddy are in Miami. This is the the sex scene, quote, unquote, the dream sex scene, where Jack takes a bath and Karen sneaks up uh, to the hotel room and sneaks into the bathroom. And I love that she walks into the bathroom where Clooney is naked and she looks him up and down. His eyes are closed and she takes a moment and just takes them all in. <laughs> it kind of reminded me of the Tremors 2 scene where the woman checks out Fred Ward's ass. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I think this is a good time to talk about this movie's usage of colors because my God, there is so much color <laughs> in this movie. It's not even funny. Even when they're at the prison the blue of their uniform popping against the green grass, the grass almost looks neon right. how saturated it is. Like this movie, especially when they're in Miami, to show that they're in Miami, this bathroom with this dark mm-hmm. red tub, uh, especially like with her dark leather jacket. I don't know, there's so many cool contrasting colors and things that really, really pop in this movie. Yeah, all the scenes with um, Jack and Karen together, uh, we'll get into it later with their actual timeout scene, um, are shot. They're so intimate looking and like just warm and colorful and full of life. And they, oh, they that just rooftop setting that we get to later. That's the coziest place in the world. Mm-hmm. And we find out that this was Karen's dream of making out with Jack in the bathtub. Yeah. Uh, which and is pretty her great. Dad, her dad wakes her like- up, be like, hey. You were talking in your sleep, saying <laughs> sexy things, basically. <laughs> but that's got to be shocking to be having sex with George Clooney in your dream and open your eyes and you're in a hospital with Dennis Farina staring at you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we get the flashback of her and Glenn fighting in the car and she actually tries to take the car over and she drove into a bunch of those barrels you see by the side of the road. Uh, in construction zones and stuff, and they're full of water. And, like, that crash is just really cool looking, I think. It's really, really well Actually, done. Actually, yeah, I thought they did a good job of not being hokey, showing her slamming her head into the, the side window. It, it all actually looked legit. Yeah. The reason for the car crash was stupid. Basically, two people fighting over the steering wheel because she wanted him to turn her, himself in or something. But And now this is when we kind of, Glenn goes back to talk to Maurice uh, Don Cheadle, correct? Um, not yet, because we get Don Cheadle shaking down Ripley, because uh, he he's Ripley tries to buy a nice oh, right. pillow from outside and wants to have a goldfish brought in, um, and so we see like the power dynamic that Snoopy is the supplier. Um, Ripley clearly can't keep his mouth shut um, and is splashing his cash all over the place, paying like three thousand dollars for a pillow, uh-huh. <laughs> and. A thousand dollars for a goldfish Rest or something ridiculous. Goldfish. Yeah, 
Yes. doesn't live long. The goldfish that is not making cool, it through the man. scene. And then uh, we get, here's where we get the scene with Karen and her dad. Um, and then her boyfriend, played by Michael Keaton. <laughs> my favorite line, my, the best line in the entire movie is, Keaton is the biggest fucking nerd you've ever seen. He's wearing a jacket with a <laughs> white t-shirt with giant letters that say FBI on it. And he walks in and Farina goes, do you ever wear a shirt that says undercover? And Keaton just goes away straight face goes, no. <laughs> Michael Keaton, he was a big deal at this point, right? Like the, the late 90s was when Keaton was really popping. I feel like he was Batman around this time. So this feels like such a small role for him. Well, he was Batman in 89. So this is uh, like nine years later. That was in 89, his Batman? Oh, holy shit. Yes. I think it's just because I, I saw it as a kid in the 90s that I, I've made it a 90s movie. But this is a tiny this, role for Keaton. This movie, more than anything, made me want to watch Jackie Brown. Well, and that's the thing that Sean doesn't know. He's playing his same character what? from Jackie Brown because they're connected stories in the Elmore Leonard universe. Is he universe. featured a lot in Jackie Brown? Uh, he's more than he is here because he only has... One okay. or two scenes in here? He gets like four yeah. minutes of screen time or something in this movie. Well, eventually I'll ha- have uh, to watch Jackie Brown just to... I think it's the only Tarantino I have not seen. It's kind and of the like okay. uh, Dark Horse Tarantino. Yeah, I've only seen... Yes. I've seen all of his movies once except for... I think Reservoir Dogs I saw twice. I think that's the only one I've, I've rewatched. A lot of people say they don't like Jackie Brown, but I mean it. it it's totally solid, and it, it's definitely a grower. Yeah, I didn't like it when I first saw it. I was in college when it came out, and I first saw it, and it it wasn't Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction, and it had a female protagonist, and it was really kind of weird to watch that at the time. But I like it a lot more now than than I did then. Still haven't seen it in a while, all the way through. I'll have to check it out eventually. Karen goes to Jack's ex-wife's place, Adele, uh, to question her to see if she knows where Jack went. Um, And that's where Luis Guzman shows up and tries to act like he is a magician who wants to hire Adele to be his assistant, which is a pretty great bit of uh, comedy that goes on that she pulled rabbits out of hats and whatnot. I love that. So Luis Guzman basically tells Karen that they're supposed to head up to Detroit. Um, and Jack and Buddy are at the hotel making plans to leave for Detroit when the SWAT team is closing in on them. Uh, but it's like a comedy of errors. The SWAT team can't get up the elevator because there's an old lady <laughs> in it. And so they have to take the stairs. And so they basically just miss jack and buddy as they're leaving which is you know what really bugs me about this the old lady steps onto the elevator and she looks at ving rams and says two please and then he reaches around her to push the <laughs> elevator button and i'm like you lazy old fuck push uh-huh. the button for two you're right there and then later as they're going down they get to the <laughs> lobby and an old guy steps on and they go down into the garage and he goes, oh, i thought this was going up 
Shut up, you elevator people. God, this is like the most annoying elevator in all the country. I liked I didn't know if that was a comment on the, the old lady thinking that he was the like the elevator I th- operator. I thought for sure it was gonna be like she's a racist old lady at first, but then she yes. turned out to seem completely pleasant and nice. So I I, I wasn't sure. So we go to Detroit. Detroit I love how it, it's an entirely different color palette than Miami. Like they timed the film differently for Detroit. All the everything white is actually blue. In Miami, everything was kind of had an orange hue and was very sunny and beautiful. In Detroit, everything is blue and cold and shitty, and it just looks like it sucks there for the you most part. Feel the, I love it. The winter <laughs> weather. Mm-hmm. I find it to be a real pleasant change of pace, though, especially because I'm a person that. I never want to live in Miami because perpetual summer is my nightmare. I, I thrive on like <laughs> fall and winter when it's cold and foggy out and stuff. And so when it gets yes. those like dulcet blue cold tones of Detroit, I'm just like, oh yeah, I'm going to put a flannel on right now. I'm going to sink into how cold this feels. This is going to be great. Watching Steve Zahn run around in knee high snow. That just... <laughs> We'll get to that. <laughs> but I was... I was I was very excited that this movie also two iconic cities that aren't featured enough in movies from in my opinion Miami and Detroit both have such a unique vibe right. so the fact that this one goes to both um yeah it, it's completely valid that complete change in palette and tone and feel and everything so we're with uh Snoopy and Glenn Glenn for some reason has also told Snoopy about the diamonds in Ripley's house and now Snoopy wants to run the job himself. And Snoopy, I wouldn't call him Snoopy. He asks people not to call him Snoopy. And then he makes Glenn kill a guy to prove that he's tough enough to be with his crew. And Glenn is just, he's shook, for lack of a better so, term. It fucks him up. There's bad. a giant guy named White Boy Bob, who's the driver. And White Boy Bob takes a hatchet with him as they go in to rob this drug dealer or whatever as they say and steve son goes what are you doing with the hatchet i thought the editing with this was really clever too because we just see the flashes of the gunshot from the window and then the the silhouette of the hatchet chopping up the body and i'm not even sure if steve mm-hmm. Zahn did anything aside from walk into that room i i, I don't it, i for me it wasn't really clear if he was if he pulled the trigger or if he just the fact that he went in there to be a witness and to get covered right. in blood was enough for them. Yeah, it definitely fucks him up bad, though. Like, I love the little sequence because after this, he's paranoid to the extreme. I, I assume he's stoned the entire movie. He's so great. And he he just hit the bad part of his trick. <laughs> and it does not get any better for him. Everything about being a criminal seemed to be a novel idea to him. Until this. Yes. And now he's like, um, I'm in the lion's den right now. And you just see him trying to figure out how to escape. Yeah. Um, so Jack and Buddy meet Snoopy at the boxing gym. Uh, they had assumed, Snoopy's gang had assumed that Jack was going to be caught uh, in the in the prison break and wasn't going to make it for the for the heist of Ripley's stuff anyway. So there's immediate tension between Snoopy and Jack and they, 
they don't come to blows, but it seems like there's definite tension and uh, it's the, the prison yard thing all over again of no one's going to be the first one to back down. Um, and there's a scene where Ripley offers Jack a job because Jack stuck up for him once and kind of guided him around Snoopy. Um, so that comes back into play later. Karen goes to the murder scene and finds out, figures out that Glenn and Snoopy are in it together, apparently. Uh, and Karen starts tailing Glenn and they figure Jack and Buddy figure they'll be picked out or picked up uh, by her pretty quickly. This is where Clooney sees her photo in the newspaper. Yeah. Yep. And so this is where, yeah, she's hunting him. And then he decides to basically flip the tables and go find her before she can find him. Yes. Uh, she goes to Kenneth's place, which is one of Snoopy's gang. Um, and he's in the heist later. Kenneth, like, makes one move towards her, and she busts out a baton and, like, cracks him with it, which is pretty <laughs> great. Uh, we see that she can take care of herself. Um, and then we see the scene where Jack goes to Ripley for his job that Ripley had promised him when they were in prison. Um, and Ripley basically offers him, like, an entry-level security guard position. And Jack is insulted. Yeah, we finally uh, see the we finally which, see the intro to the movie. Yes, it's the, it's right before he he goes and robs the Sun Trust, uh, and I I don't know why he's insulted because he already says that there's nothing else he can do. He knows that he's not suitable for most types of jobs, and Ripley really is giving him a position where he could possibly move up. Yeah, it's, he just has to humble himself. It to seems take, like he's giving him a fair shake, and I mean. Ripley knows this guy's M.O., so he does need to be sure that he's on the straight and narrow before he puts him on something that is actual, a, like a, a job with serious liability. So I, I understand right. where he's going from. But that's what kind of set off the whole thing at the beginning of the movie um, and turns him against Ripley so that he decides that he's actually going to take part in the heist. Um, then we get... To me, the best scene in the movie, uh, Karen is sitting at a hotel bar all by herself, and these three wieners... <laughs> you like you like the stock traders, don't you, Josh? I do. Or the, bankers, the or whatever the fuck guys. they are. They're ad yeah. guys, and they're in town to try to pitch something for some liquor company, I think? Uh, and they're all wieners. They're, yeah. <laughs> they're a bunch of dorks. And they all try to hit on Jennifer Lopez, like these middle America, middle management, middlemen uh, come in, like try to hit on J-Lo and she turns so them down. The first, guy, the first guy was bad enough because like, hey, let me buy you a drink or whatever, whatever, blah, blah, blah. She says, no, I'm not interested. And he kind of walks away and snark, whatever. Then the second guy. Sits down across from her, says, I know why you're depressed. <laughs> tells her, it's because you're a woman and you're trying to sell something, but they won't buy it from you because you're a woman. And it's like, dude, you are the dumbest motherfucker I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> what an asshole. What a condescending asshole this guy is. 
<laughs> all these dudes trying to run game on her and it's just it's all falling flat and it's great <laughs> and uh when she turns all of them down she's looking out the window and you see like the city lights you see her reflection the city lights out the window snow falling uh and then out of the darkness jack appears and it's the most suave he's looked it's just the best oh, he, shot he's, of him. He's clooning uh, it up so hard in these next three minutes. This is like everything mm-hmm. that he's learned in his 38 years on this earth are going into this scene now of how much fucking charm can I lay on? I mean, this is him at his peak, isn't it? I, I'd say so. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the lighting looks like it totally changes when he sits down because it looks like they're enveloped basically. Like there's a little bit of light in the middle that's lighting both their faces and the darkness is on the outside of them. And it's like bringing them together in the middle. Um, You would almost expect there to be like a heart shape in the light (laughs) because it is so uh, like almost soap opera looking like it's, it's so warm and beautifully done. Yeah, and I love it. One thing that contributes and, uh, to that soap opera, like too perfect feeling, is that the snow is clearly fake to the point where it looks like mm-hmm. Hollywood snow, which for me like, adds more to that feel of it's a wonderful life or something. Of just like this moment is too perfect to actually exist. And that's what these characters are both feeling at this time. We get this sequence, which is a combination of them talking uh, as other characters flirting with each other um, and them getting ready to go to bed with each other later. And the way that it's cut, it's to just talk through it would be the most confusing thing in the world because it doesn't make any logical sense, but it's taken off of um, the movie Don't Look Now, which has a very similar sex scene, which is much more graphic and not as sexy because it's like two people who are hurting and it's their only chance at connection for each other. This one is so full of longing and just lustful and beautiful in a way that that other one isn't. Uh, I think that it should have won an award for just this sequence in editing. It was edited by Ann V Coates, who Sean and I were talking about her earlier. She edited everything from Lawrence of Arabia to the elephant man to 50 shades of gray. Oh wow. Like she's prolific. Yeah, her That's career crazy. spanned she forever. From 1950 to 2015 essentially. Like unbelievable this woman's career looking at her. She was uh she won an Oscar for Lawrence of Arabia. She was nominated four other times including for this movie. Um the Motion Picture Editors Guild listed out of sight as the 52nd best edited film of all time based on a survey of the motion picture editors guild members. Um, and the, the coloring, the visual language, it was almost like all these points had to, or all these departments were talking to each other. It's such a high level that they're working. Um, and it just, I mean, Soderbergh is the decider. He's the one who's making this thing happen overall. Uh, so, and he's, he's pulled off similar things but nothing quite to this level. I don't think very many people have. It's just a beautiful sequence. The sex sequence? Oh yeah, they're doing Mm -hmm. that classic (laughs) face-to-face silhouette humping that you see in Top Gun and Days of Thunder and 
those are basically like the two movies I really <laughs> associate with silhouette sex. But no, it's <laughs> for a guy who had many awkward times watching sex scenes on TV with his parents. Uh, this movie is thankfully pretty restrained when it comes to this scene. And also, yes, I'm glad that uh, Jennifer Lopez was not forced to do. Like, you can tell she's not forced to do anything she didn't want to do. The camera never lingers on her butt or zooms in on her boobs. Like, it's it it's never exploitative right. that way. It's actually more exploitative of Clooney than it is of her, which is a nice change of pace. Oh, totally. And the thing is, it's totally sexy without being graphic or sexual, really. Uh, just the tone and the feel of it. Uh, and the heat between the two of them is like, it's just I really like the scene when they undress in front of each other because it does feel I don't, a little bit silly. You know, they're both they're both giggling through this a little mm-hmm. bit as they're about to jump in bed. It's not that thing where it's like normally in Hollywood movies, characters like tackle each other into bed with some kind of like pile driver maneuver. And it's, it looks like they're wrestling more. But this feels a lot more realistic where it's like you're nervous as you're undressing for the first time in front of someone. And so it's just I don't I, I, I thought I, I really actually thought this was done quite well. This sex scene. I love they have a little conversation afterwards um and the next morning when karen wakes up uh the on the pillow next to her is the gun that her dad gave to her clooney's gone but he left that gun that she thought he probably tossed in a river uh so now she's been given the same gift twice that conversation after they had sex rang so real where He's asleep, and she's clearly in her own head freaking out about things. And so she wakes him up by essentially chastising him of like, you know I'm not just here to hook up, and this wasn't some kind of kink thing, it was something. And all he says is, why are you angry? (laughs) But it's like, (laughs) it just rang really true, especially when people are new around each other. You're just kind of like, can I trust you to be emotionally vulnerable around you, or are you a user, you know? Uh, so I, I again I dug that scene right. too. I thought that was really well written and acted. Once their little timeout is over, uh, we're at the fights because Glenn or Snoopy has a, a fighter in the fights this night that he's managing. Um, Glenn is with Snoopy and his gang, and he is getting bad vibes out of the whole deal. He's he tries to sneak away. Uh, Karen follows at him. At this point, Steve Vaughn. Our Zan says something to Big White Boy about going to the bathroom or something, and Big White Boy punches him in the chest, and you just see Steve Zahn just look so yeah. sad and scared <laughs> and, like, bummed out about who he's uh-huh. with, and he just wants to get out of there, and <laughs> it's just Steve Zahn being hilarious. Definitely in over his head at this point. And he is, it seemed like being a criminal was really fun when he was in Miami and with the other guys. And now he's here and it's serious and it's so sad. (laughs) It's not fun being a criminal anymore. Karen follows him. He tells her that Snoop is planning on killing Jack that night and taking the reward money. He's going to kill him during the heist. And get the reward money. And apparently also the diamonds from heisting Ripley's place. Like he's trying to come out on top of everybody. And 
when the gang heads out to the car, Glenn runs off. Karen is going to follow the gang. When the gang walks out to their cars, uh, White Boy Bob slips and falls in the icy street, which I've never noticed before. But where he ends up in the movie, this is like foreshadowing, and I have never noticed it. I love that they that they plant the little seed. I didn't notice his fall, but I love that they they added the character trait that he's clumsy. Just very subtly. Oh, that's awesome. So the gang heads to the heist. Karen's trailing them. When they're in the house, there's nobody there except for Ripley's maid, Midge, who's played by Nancy Allen from fucking RoboCop. That was such a surprise to me. Just like such yes. a late late in the movie reveal. You've probably seen her in some of the De Palma films lately, because have you watched some of them with the other Discord members? Uh, let's see. I'm... I'm not as familiar was with she, De Palma. Was she as in she um, Body Double? Oh, to, uh, she's in yeah, Blowout, Dress to Kill, Blowout. I love. I I need mm-hmm. to revisit it just to. I've only seen it the one time, but I do love that movie. She was in several uh, De Palma films, and they were married for like four or five years, which I didn't know for a long time. Yeah, she's in Dress to Kill, Blowout, and Home Movies. Uh, all right in a row. I've never even heard of home movies. Yeah, it's one of his that I haven't seen. I've seen most of De Palma's stuff, but there's still a couple that I've missed. Uh, Those early ones, I think, I don't know if anything before Hi Mom ever got put out on DVD, but I know that there was three or four before that point. So Nancy Allen is the quote-unquote maid who's the love interest for Ripley? Yes. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I could have done without the threat of sexual violence in this movie. That really having one character threatening that just didn't feel necessary at all. And there's there's two scenes of it, and I, I it just didn't feel necessary. I did I did find it a little funny that they like it had all that foreboding, and then the payoff is kind of they're both in a bed, and it just felt very traditional. <laughs> I well, not to get yes. too far ahead, but I do love. It was very unique how that guy gets killed, where she throws the blankets on top of him so that he can't see anything, and then he gets shot through the blankets. I thought that was actually really clever, and one of those things where it's like, my god, that's so simple, why have I not seen that before? This is Kenneth, who Karen kicked his ass earlier when he he tried to sleaze his way coming onto her. So, you know, they've set it up that he's a predator, and possibly worse than Snoopy. As far as being a criminal and being a lowlife, he's the creepiest guy around. I love the fact that right before that, the gang starts searching uh, Ripley's house for those diamonds and Snoopy and his dudes like Snoopy is in his closet trying on his suits, essentially. And white boy Bob (laughs) is raiding the fridge, grabbing steaks. He's like, but dude, the stakes are like yeah, this big I and had, holds his hands up like a football. I, was like, I had that note that he found some stakes and that cracked me up. Uh, all right. So, yeah, we got to get to the safe cracking. <laughs> what, the, the safe cracking scene is ridiculous. <laughs> so, yeah, they get yes. Kenneth with the shotgun. Kenneth's about to shoot the safe door. It's clearly like a brand new heavy duty safe. It's so shiny that there's a cool shot where it's a mirror shot of the two actors on glossing off of the surface of the safe door. Mm-hmm. And Don Cheeto goes, whoa, 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 you're going to kill me. And then they all stand 
slightly to the side and pull out their pistols and just start blasting this fucking thing at the ricochets. I thought for sure Midge was going to get hit with one of those ricochets. Uh, but yeah, this scene was preposterous. And nobody even bothered to ask Midge what the combination was, because she seems very willing to give it up. Yes, is after they almost get killed by the ricochet, she tells them the combination, <laughs> and it's Ripley's birthday. Like, it's the most ridiculous thing. The easiest one. It would be the first one that an actual thief would try. But these guys are just idiots. Meanwhile, Foley found Ripley hiding in a closet. Ripley's just a coward. He let Midge go out there because... Foley or uh, Ripley was supposed to be in Florida, back in Florida, I think. And he and Midge are trying to hide the affair from her husband. Then Foley also finds the diamonds, which are in the bottom of the fish tank. They Josh, look just I don't like want regular you to rocks. skip over the fact that in the vault are three toupees and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> when they do open the vault, it's just his hair pieces. With beautiful, elegant lighting, like they are works of art. <laughs> so yeah we yes. yeah we hear that it's in the fish tank which they tried to kind of allude to earlier with the goldfish him receiving the goldfish um mm -hmm. a funny little MacGuffin, you know like the the ways writers figure out how to hide valuable things in movies is sometimes is really funny and so the fact that this guy just right. had diamonds in his fish tank uh kind of cracks me up in the fact that ving rames Fishes them out with a tiny little fish net <laughs> to get them all. <laughs> Once they have the diamonds, Jack and Buddy are going to take off because they kind of know it's not going to be good for them if Snoopy catches them. But Jack feels like they're going to hurt Midge. And so he decides to back, head back inside. He sends Buddy off and tells him to go call his sister because it's a running theme of Buddy's sister is a nun. And he calls her and confesses his crimes. Oh, I didn't get that. Was that the joke at the end of the movie? Oh, man. Call was, your sister. Call yes. your sister's. Oh, God. It, it was the reason they had been in jail yeah. before. Is that what happened? No, I got that. I just I didn't get the nun connection part of the joke. Yes. One of the times was because of him. He called before. Apparently, he hired a prostitute for 45 minutes and then talked to his sister for three hours to confess. Jack goes back in. This is where he kills Kenneth, rightfully so. Yeah, Midge throws the blanket on him, which is awesome. Well, we, uh, we also realize he's never killed a person before. Right. Did White Boy Bob happen before or after this? It's right after because he runs back out of the bedroom and there's White Boy Bob at the bottom of the stairs. And I love this. This is a detail that I have tried to use in multiple stories. Like, I want someone to wind up as foolishly as White Boy Bob does. <laughs> Something ridiculous like this to happen. Because White Boy Bob tries to run up the stairs, misses his footing falls down and shoots himself in the head completely believable it's so good completely believable because nobody in movies ever has trigger discipline yeah so they always have their fingers wrapped around the trigger right i've only seen this once before and that was in um the brad pitt zombie movie, world war z there's like this iranian professor is like the key he's like a scientist who knows how to do a cure Give him a gun, and then he's running onto the plane and trips and dunk. <laughs> it's yep. very, I shot Marvin in the face. Exactly. That's what it made me think of. It's a great gag, honestly. I, White Boy Bob, especially that it was White Boy Bob that it happened to, that really made me laugh, this part. And Clooney just kind of looks surprised and like, 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he, he definitely doesn't know what to do. And then Snoopy comes around the corner. Like, Jack is like, he's standing there basically looking at himself, like checking himself over to make sure he hasn't been shot. And then Snoopy comes around the corner, just blasting away. He runs out of bullets. And the two of them just like start beating the shit out of each other, like dragging each other around this balcony. I would say it's the second harshest beatdown we've seen between these two movies. <laughs> the the nightclub one and Point Blank being the first, because nobody gets punched in the dick in this one. I wish, though. I've You mentioned like Soderbergh, like trying to work in all of his inspirations into his movies. I wish he would have worked the dick punch into this movie somewhere. Snoopy goes for White Boy Bob's gun, and then Karen comes around the corner and just drops him immediately. He gets one shot at her. Uh, I don't even know if he gets a shot off. Like, he, he aims at her and she drops it. I don't think so. And Snoopy ends up basically resting on the small of White Boy Bob's back, which, like, it's just like... <laughs> God, if I'm going to die, I don't want to die looking at a gigantic sweaty man's ass. <laughs> yes. And I don't know if you noticed, the, the music switches back to their music from their seduction scene, from Jack and Karen's seduction scene. Jack comes out from hiding, and Karen begs him to put his gun down. And he tells her he can't do it. He's not going to go back. You hear police sirens in the distance coming to the house. He won't put his gun down. She doesn't know that he's out of bullets. She shoots him in the leg. I get why he's wearing the ski mask in this scene to make it easier for her, but Clooney in a ski mask looks kind of stupid and absurd, and I, 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 I wonder if this movie would have been more impactful <laughs> had they not had that scene. And also, Midge can hear this whole conversation most likely, so is Midge just gonna be like, uh, yeah, they had a whole conversation about if she's gonna shoot him or not. They definitely seem to have banged at some point in the past week. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we see, after he gets shot in the leg, we see a scene of Buddy getting into a cab and pulling out the old bag of diamonds uh, and smiling. So I guess Buddy's set up for life. I swear we get the same shot in one of the Mission Impossible movies where, like, Ving Rhames loads up the knock list as he's driving away, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get Jack being put into the back of a, a transport wagon, and Karen's in the front, and we find out through a little bit of dialogue that she was supposed to leave the night before, but she waited for him, for his transport. Uh, and she's going to take him back down to Miami. And she gives him his lighter, his little token that he's held on to through the whole movie. She gives it to him through the grate and says that she'll have to take it back at the end of the ride. And then we meet Samuel L. Jackson. In the final like minute and a half of this movie, Sam Jackson walks in. Turns out he's an expert jailbreaker. He's broken <laughs> out of prison like 10 times. And it just so happens that Karen set it up so that the two of them would ride together. Fully says something about like, oh, we must... Maybe someone thought we had a lot to talk about. And then you get a great song and uh, the end of the movie. I, I really loved this ending. What it made me recall, and a little spoilers for the Christian Bale, Russell Crowe, Return to Yuma, to fast forward about 30 seconds. But at the end of that movie, essentially, Russell Crowe gets on the prison train to get Christian Bale payment. But he whistles for his horse to basically imply that Oh, right around the next bend, Russell Crowe's escaping from this train. And, and so I really liked that that moment where it's kind of like, okay, yeah, the person has gained trust and affection 
for whoever their accomplice is. So they're not willing to completely trade in who they were, but they are willing to bend a little and sacrifice some part of themselves or, or, or go through something that they wouldn't normally have for their new friend or for their new partner. And so I, I thought this was actually a really sweet ending because it's just kind of like, okay, well, they're just going to keep going on this Bonnie and Clyde path, you know, and this is the only way their, their relationship can survive realistically. I don't think they would ever be able to, like, move in together and date each other. <laughs> Although uh, her dad apparently likes Foley more than the Michael Keaton character. Everyone would like <laughs> anyone more than the Michael Keaton character. <laughs> yeah, he's a dork, and he's cheating on his wife, so. Well, that is it. Jesus Christ, I see three hours, 28 minutes at the runtime at the top of this. <laughs> I seriously thought before I talked to Austin, I was like, God, I don't know how much I'm going to have to say about Out of Sight. I feel like this might be like a 90-minute episode, but no, here we are. I think this is our longest ever, so congratulations to us all. We found a way. We found a way. Through the darkness, we lit the path. Austin, thank you so much for joining us, man. I really appreciate you choosing um, Point Blank. I had so much fun having you here, and it was it was really great having you join us. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun uh, talking a movie I love and a movie I haven't seen before. Yeah, that's always what's exciting here is um, when we've kind of forced each other to watch new stuff. Uh, and some of the things have been new to both of us. It definitely made me dig deeper, even on Tremors 2, <laughs> than I ever would have thought possible. So Today, you guys carried me because I haven't seen either of these. And so I feel like I really had fun today because... I was just along for the ride of getting to kind of poke at you guys and see how these movies <laughs> made you tick and to come at them from a new perspective. So I, I really had a good time today. Um, Austin, yeah, do you have anything you want to plug, Austin, or anything like that? Uh, so nothing of my uh, personal work, I guess, but uh, I do work with uh, Central Cinema out of Knoxville, Tennessee. So if you are in the area... Uh, come by and see some movies and you may even see one of the movies we've talked about oh, yeah. tonight. Uh, and if you're not in the area, you can still go online and order central cinema merch, uh, which I have done. I haven't even been to the theater yet. My daughter went past and took pictures of the theater for me when she went to Knoxville. Cause she knows that I'm already a fan of the place. Um, she actually walked in and took a picture of the inside of the, the main hallway there with all the movie oh, posters. Yeah. It, it's super cool to walk through. Yeah. Like I'm definitely pumped to go, but uh, yeah, the shirts look great uh, and they're super comfortable. And my hat is very stylish and keeps the sun out of my eyes. The, uh, the shirt design was done by Hag Colt, which is actually another Knoxville native. And she does some awesome work. It's weird. Cause I've seen her stuff. Uh, retweeted by like a lot of other people, Barbara Crampton. Oh for yeah, one. yeah. Uh, uh, and then there was somebody just yesterday, I think, where I saw it retweeted. Yeah, it's as well. really cool to see her getting uh, recognition because I don't know. I, I never have had like hometown stuff be a thing before, so it's pretty cool. So I would like to plug this podcast I've been listening to called. Nashville CA. <laughs> I think it's really good. Um, I just want to read a quick review that some random person wrote. And it's a five-star review posted on June 22nd. It says, 
This is the best podcast I have ever hosted. <laughs> hosted by Sean of the Bread. That's, that's some other guy. That's not me. But uh, <laughs> in all seriousness. Um, Love it. Yeah, you can buy bread from me if you want, or bagels or something. I'll ship them nationwide. Uh, go to Sean of the Bread, Kenwood, K E N W O O D. And uh, yeah, I've, I've sent them around. I'll allow a plug to Sean of the Bread to say Thank that you, those bagels are very good. I've got two of them defrosting right now from, from my stash. So, um, yeah. It's going to be breakfast. I think that'll do it. Um, Josh, you want to take us out? I mean, we don't really have an outro, so thanks everybody for listening. Well, that's hold on. Can let's we need some <laughs> kind of little. <laughs> we need a saying, and it needs to be something like as memorable as "Stay Flippy." Well, you can't. <laughs> you can't. I don't know if he can beat Stay Flippy. I don't even that's know if he can meet plan. Stay Flippy. Um, that's a good one. <laughs> all right, until we figure out a real outro, I'll say this. Everyone, please be kind to yourselves, love yourselves, love your neighbors, take care. We'll see you in two weeks.